I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Jimmy Brown, the newsman, Bionic. I have no idea what that refers to. It's an old 50s song about Jimmy Brown, the newsboy, going and selling papers, giving the news to people. Yeah. Normally I know old songs like that. Huh? That, that one, trust me, when you want to get yeah. down to the truly obscure, I've got your beat. Yeah, yeah Futurians, uh, hope that Jimmy gives you Brown, a Terry Thacker knows it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Terry Thacker does, okay. <laughs> Well, I hope Colonel Terry's listening out there. Yeah. We love you, brother. Colonel T. And the rest of you Futurians, too. It's good to be back with you again this week um, as we go through some very tenuous times in our society right now and world. It's a big old party. And we're when I say party, what I mean is mess. We're gonna when I say mess, what I mean is scary. <laughs> okay. Have you had enough embedded interpretations there? It's like it's like some people the way some people do word studies. You know? When I say it, it means it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to be back with you this week. We'll jump into something useful to say, which usually takes us about three quarters of the show to do. But um, just a few little quick announcements uh, out of the way. I've got a few thank yous to our Futurians out there. I want to thank Robert out in the UK who's made a uh, donation to our show that will Sweet. help us with our expenses. And I also want to thank our, our friend uh, um, Audra uh, in Africa. Mm-hmm. Who uh, ordered a pandemonium book? Sweetness. And uh, hopefully this will be out to you soon. I have to go when the post office is open and get the custom stuff done. You know, you know how that hassle goes, Audrey, and the rest of you international mm-hmm. futurians out there. We'll get that out to you. It's Pandemonium's Engine. It's about transhumanism, uh, and I write on some prophetic implications related to Nimrod and things like that. It's got a whole bunch of authors in it. You can order it at the front of futurequake.com. There's only a few left. About four copies left. So if uh, you're interested in that, drop, go to the front of futurequake.com and you can also order How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century uh, with a bunch of other authors you'll recognize. And I write about fuel and food shortages and Babylon and a bunch of conspiracy stuff in the Bible. So if you're interested in either of those, just head over while there's a few left. And the last announcement relates to, I want to remind you all, um, we're going to have some commemorative t shirts made. And posters, maybe even some coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. And I want you to go to the front of futurequake.com and you can go look at those books I just mentioned on the left hand side at the top. We'll go down to the bottom right corner and I have some artwork of a couple candidate t shirts and some posters. And I ask for some information if you're interested and need to know what size t shirt. Do you want a sweatshirt, t shirt, golf shirt? Um, how much would you be willing to pay for it so we know where we can get them made, those kind of things. And then drop an email to uh, Dr. Future, drfuture at futurequake.com. Merv will tell you later about that. And um, we'll, uh, uh, we'd like to hear back from you on that so we can figure out how to accumulate an order. going to try to put in an order sometime shortly after the beginning of, the, of next month. And so I don't want you all to stall and wait before you let me know. But hurry up real quick because I'm putting a spreadsheet together. Mm-hmm. And if we only have a few, that means we have to make it in a certain direction. If we get more, we can do it another way. And what kind price. of what kind of shirts do you want? Me? Yeah, I want one of both of them. I'd like sort of the sort of the you know the a button up sort of. Oh, the type of shirt. Yeah, the type. Yeah, I like don't a know. like a baseball cap or baseball shirt, tee, medium shirt, 
sort of a V-neck? Uh, what do you want? I don't know. I mm-hmm. don't know. Kind of a Hawaiian uh, shirt? I wasn't getting that detail into it, you know. Nehru jacket is what I would prefer. A Nehru jacket? A Nehru jacket would be my mm-hmm. ideal. I'd also like ski masks, but I don't know how many of those get printed. <laughs> it'd be funny if you could put, like, your face on the ski mask and yeah. pull it over. Well, it would be, you know what it would be like? Um, uh, v for Vendetta. It would be F for Future. And we could have Tom Bionic and Dr. Future faces that they could wear at the protest. It'd be even better, like... We could get some, like one yeah. one that looks like me and one that looks like you, yeah. and then you wear mine and I wear yours. Yeah. And we'll go like break stuff, and then and then when one of us robs a bank, they'll go look for the <laughs> other one. But what I was thinking is when people protest, you know, when the man comes down with the truncheons, when the that man they would, comes down, you know, they mm-hmm. would they would see our movement or mm-hmm. or not, or we could just make some t-shirts. So sorry about that, you got me in that direction. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'd love to hear from smoking jackets too. Would be in something else. Yeah, sort like of a have. paisley kind of a yeah, yeah. something glistening with Checking. like a velvet lapel. Yeah. Something exactly. So when you go to the drawing room, you know, with fellow Futurians, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, go talk about your safaris and stuff, you could wear them. But, mm-hmm. but until then, we'll get some something else, other apparel to wear, maybe a hat or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's. That's it for now. It's time for news, unless you got some other late-breaking something happening with you, buddy. Well, you know, I mean, just just nothing really. Um, You've started your new position. I have, in fact. What's your verdict on? You've had, what, one whole day? One whole day. Uh, everybody's very excited for me to be there. Good. It's very interesting. It's a new new environment, you know. It's like... Yeah. Um, you haven't been fired yet, right? No. That's good. Uh, not to my knowledge. That's good. I did get a text message saying, we need to talk. From the director. Yeah. No, just kidding. Yeah, looking um, at your track record. Yeah. Now, I think it's I think it's overall been very good. Everybody's very excited. Um, you know, a very interesting mix of people. Mm-hmm. Some people who mm-hmm. are legitimately just down on their luck, and some other people. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. In this Christian ministry. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's the thing. You know, you're which, able to do it in the name of Christ. Yep. Which means that uh, I'll never be rich and can barely mm-hmm. pay my rent and. It's All not the other things. Everything else is the it's same. It's not with Blackwater or XC mm-hmm. or yeah. Any I'm of not working caliber. for Satan. Okay. You know, I did see. It's funny. I did on the way there. I got some gas mm-hmm. in the morning about 7:30 a.m. and the dude in front of me was wearing a Blackwater shirt. Really? Yeah, the big old muscular dude with glasses. Yeah. I said, "Do you work for them?" And he said, "I can't answer that." <laughs> really? All right. How would you like to live in a lifestyle six, like that? Six, six, six. Man, I got on the I got on the Bay Area Rapid Transit when last year. Yeah, uh, coming back from the airport. The Bart. Yeah, the Bart. And there was a dude, there was a dude there trying to talk to another guy about um, about going to work as a contractor in Iraq. And he was mm-hmm. like, "Man, I'm making so much money. Yeah. I like I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, man. And dude, I I showed up here, you know, and my clothes were dirty, and so I bought new clothes and threw the old clothes away because I needed new clothes because the old clothes stunk. I just don't have time. Uh-huh. And you need to go here. I can get you on, man. I can get you mm-hmm. on. And I'm listening to this going, really? Mm-hmm. Well, what are you paying? What what would you get them on for, man? Just anything you want, you know. You need to be. Mm-hmm. You got any sort of cop or military, even a security guard experience. I can get you there. You be making hundreds of mm-hmm. dollars a day. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you don't mind bludgeoning, that's the task. Mm-hmm. Bludgeoning. Uh, you can gain the whole world. It just costs you your soul. Yeah, uh, and I sort of, I sort of handed around on that. I said, "Do you have any, do you have any sort of philosophical qualms about maybe doing stuff that's not right?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "No, man, they're bad." Yeah. I'm like, all right. Yeah, he's paid well to look at it that way. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Well, let's get into some news. Anything uh, you want to kick off with? Sure. I'll. Um, you went the first the last few times, so maybe I'll. I'll, I'll hit it here. My dream was to go first this week, but that's okay. Well, I'm here to crush it. Okay. Call me the steel boot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, man. Yep. This is from Reuters, very conspiratorial, oh, yeah. you know, sort yeah. of fringe newspaper. Uh, Americans not immune if they act against the U.S. This That's what the CIA mm-hmm. is now saying. Americans are not immune... From being treated like an enemy if they take up arms against the United States, the CIA General Counsel said on Thursday. CIA General Counsel Stephen Preston was responding to a question at an American Bar Association National Security Conference about the killing of Americans overseas without presenting evidence of wrongdoing. A CIA drone strike killed Anwar al-Awlaki, an American-born cleric linked to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Earlier this year, he was linked to failed plots to blow up a U.S.-bound air airplane in 2009 and cargo planes in 2010. Preston said he would not discuss a Lockheed or any specific operations, but he says, I will make this observation that citizenship does not confer immunity on one who takes up arms against his own country. If he didn't in World War II, um, when there were American citizens who joined the Nazi army, and it doesn't, in, it doesn't today. Uh, Jay Johnson, Defense Department General Counsel, said he echoed Preston's comments. He was saying there was U.S. citizens that went over to Germany and fought for him? Is that uh-huh. what he was saying? Yes. And they still claim they were U.S. citizens? Uh, well, not to my knowledge. I mean, Yeah, you know, that's news to me. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they, there were obviously it's ones possible. that went over and fought for Germany, but they yeah. didn't claim American citizenship. Yeah. Um, but he said the same view would not apply to someone who was not considered an enemy combatant. And they get to decide. Uh, We go down a slippery slope of an individual who wants to do harm to Americans and who was inspired by his own basement, in his own basement by the writings he has read from Al-Qaeda and hasn't interacted with a single other individual in that group, yet he has decided to do violence against America based on what he read, in my view, is not part of the congressionally declared enemy, and we have to be careful not to go down that landscape. Um, He said it was not foreseeable to take decisions made on on enemy combatants to courts each time. Um... Courts are not equipped to make those types of decisions, which are very often based on moment by moment, on an intelligent intelligent picture that constantly evolves. So basically what they're saying is, yeah. look. They would be slowed down by considering the rights of the person mm-hmm. that they're Mora- we need to We need to move too fast. Morality, we can't, we can't consider morality or mm-hmm. the philosophy of what is good and bad. We just got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be another side to... Uh, what they're doing, or they could be making a mistake with somebody. There's no mm-hmm. time to really ponder that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, wow. from Reuters. in the head. And our evangelical friends who really, really like this kind of stuff just cannot grasp, and I know a lot of our Futurians run into family members mm-hmm. and church folk that they don't recognize this is the very same language that will be used against Christians one day. Yes. When somebody calls us an enemy combatant and mm-hmm. they think we're dangerous. And well, causing this holy war uh, is one thing that will actually co- convict the, the world, the third-party world. Holy that, war. That we're a danger holy just like war. Muslims and everything Killing else. Killing people more and more. They'll be afraid of any monotheistic religion. War is a racket.org. Well, speaking of war, can I talk a little bit about war? Please. Um, this is an update. I know a lot of our Futurians, they're probably the most informed people on this globe. 
So I'm sure I read some information that they know at times, but just in case somebody misses. This is uh, something new from Israel. I've got a few Israel uh, news source. Now, this is mm-hmm. one of the more dubious ones. It's Debka, but um, a lot of people read it, and this puts some timelines on things. Um, is, uh, this just came out. Israel and Syria brace for regional war between mid-December and mid-January. Uh, it says the actions and words of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Syria ruler Bashar Assad in the last 72 hours indicate that they are poised for a regional war, including an attack on Iran for some time between December 2011 and January 2012. Well, there's there's people reporting in Russia that the shooting has already started. Like actual shooting, not just espionage and yeah, uh, no, no, they're sabotage. saying yeah, they're saying that uh, you know our special forces have. Blowing they stuff do. Up they are saying that. Yeah, they're saying that they're already going there. You've seen on the Russian newswire. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's what happened in Iraq. It's. Before. I mean, it's tough to really say what really is going on in that yeah. sort of fluid timeline because yeah. the, you know, the various Russian places they tend to get a little sensational and fact checked almost. But you know, like. But then again, Dunars. So yeah. Ours? Yeah. I mean, at least you get a well-rounded view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. I find Al Jazeera sometimes mm-hmm. has some useful information. Uh huh. Press TV, even Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the British has some very, very good stuff. Uh, most of mine are Israeli newspapers, and they will surprise you what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let me just go on with Debka here. Uh, but by the way, I don't know if you heard the news today, uh, maybe a little older listeners, that the um, um, the uh, drone that mm-hmm. uh, the Iranians recovered that we said that we didn't lose, mm-hmm. and now we're saying, okay, yeah, we lost one, it was a minor one. Mm-hmm. And now we said, okay, it was a major one. Well, it was actually being operated by the CIA. Oh, yeah, that's not a... So, so and yeah. it was operating in Iranian airspace. Uh-huh. I, I actually, I'll, I'll make a, uh, I actually went around to a bunch of forums today yeah. posting that, you know, posting that it was a CIA drone and yeah. with some commentary about how, you know, like, what do you expect when you fly drones in somebody else's airspace? Right. It's an act of war. Yeah. What would you do if, like, Mexico decided to fly F-18s around... Mm-hmm. You know, greater the greater Houston China. area, yeah, China. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an act of war, but um, I would say they're probably looking for either places for bombs to land or for special forces. Mm-hmm. You know, from there. But well, there's obviously that thing too. For I'm sure, I almost feel sheepish even saying this because our listeners are so well informed. Mm-hmm. But there was that. You know, the forest has already said that there's been major explosions at various. Right. Uh, nuke sites, and they're saying that it was uh, American, British, and Israeli espionage. Which is what I've heard is sort of the beginning of the war, is yeah. the fact that they've already had their people embedded doing mm-hmm. sabotage mm-hmm. operations. You know, the irony of is that is the least violent of things. Now, we don't have any legal right to do that whatsoever. It is an act of war where mm-hmm. you would expect retaliate, retaliation, but it's the least violent phase of what this stuff is that's going on. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> it says... Um, uh, in their different ways, both have posted road signs, both Iran and uh, Israel, uh, to the fast-approaching conflict, as Debka Files Middle East sources disclose. Number one, Saturday, December 3rd, Syria staged a large-scale military exercise in the eastern town of Palmyra, which was interpreted by Western and Israeli pundits as notice to its neighbors, primarily Turkey and Israel, that the uprising against the Assad regime has not fractured its sophisticated missile capabilities. 
Uh, Debka files military sources advise attaching more credibility to the official Damascus statement of Sunday, December 4th, which says the Syrian army has staged a live fire drill in the eastern part of the country under warlike circumstances with the aim of testing its missile weaponry and confronting any attack. Uh, the aim of testing its, uh, see, videotapes of the exercise briefly carried on the internet early Monday before they were removed by an unseen hand support this statement. They showed a four-stage exercise. You know, as if an occult hand moved that video off. I wondered if you were going to bring that up. Yeah. For our longtime Futurian listeners, they'll know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, They showed a four-stage exercise in which missile fire was a minor feature. Its focus was on the massive firing of a self-propelled 120-millimeter cannon, brigade strength practice of 600-millimeter and 300-millimeter multiple launch rocket systems, Offensive movements of Syrian armored brigades backed by ground-to-ground missiles with short 150 to 200 kilometer ranges. They drilled tactics for repelling enemy reinforcements rush to combat areas. Mm. All this added up to an impressive Syrian demonstration of its ability to ward off an attack on Syrian soil by turning a defensive array into an offensive push for taking the battle over to the aggressor's territory, whether the Turkish or Israeli armies or a combined Arab League force backed by NATO. Now, you know, it's interesting, um, a couple of years ago, I had done work in a company in Israel that does some defense work that was actually the very, very northern tip of Israel at the base of the Golan. In fact, they were north of southern Lebanon. Okay? Wow. When they had that little that piece that goes little up inside. There. Yeah, they were way up there. My recollection, they were something like 12 to 15 miles from Damascus. Where the kibbutz was. You could, with a good arm, you could throw a baseball and hit, yeah. you know, and hit the... The Via but de la Rosa. It's, it's right at the right at the base of the, yeah. the thing. So, um, I'm just wondering what the, what what their status. I've thought about actually contacting them and seeing, you know, what what have they heard because they're sort of in ground zero for all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, Israel made its rejoinder to the Syrian war message 24 hours later, addressing a ceremony honoring the memory of Israel's founding father David Ben Gurion. Netanyahu recalled how 63 years ago. Ben-Gurion declared the foundation of the state of Israel in defiance of pressures from most of the Western leaders and the majority of his own party. Okay, this is when he sort of went against the U.N. and everybody else and declared it. They warned him that he would trigger a combined Arab attack for destroying the fledgling state just three years after the end of World War II. Okay, so Mm -hmm. he was already warned there was going to be war from the Arabs, and he went anyway. He says, but fortunately for us, said the Prime Minister, Ben-Gurion stood up to the pressure and went through with his decision. Otherwise, Israel would not be here today. You can see what he's setting the people up for. You know, setting up a decision that leads exactly. to pure fire war. He's saying, I'm so glad we went through that, you know. Mm-hmm. He says, there are times, said Netanyahu, when a decision may carry a heavy price, but the price for not deciding would be heavier. So he's getting the public prepped. He says, I want to believe, he said, we will always have the courage and resolve for the right decisions to safeguard our future and security. Although he didn't mention Iran, it was not hard to infer that the Prime Minister was referring to a decision to exercise Israel's military option against Iran's nuclear program in the face of crushing pressure from Washington and insistent advice of certain Israeli security veterans. Mm-hmm. Defense Minister Ehud Barak, who was standing behind the Prime Minister's shoulder, was as tense as a coiled spring. Uh, That's a... Uh a good yeah. word, really, yeah. actually. Uh, number three, six hours later, Netanyahu dropped a bombshell 
on the domestic political scene. He announced his Likud party would hold elections, including primaries, before January 31, 2012, two years before schedule and a year before Israel's next general election. Mm -hmm. As head of one of the most stable and long-lived coalition governments ever to have ruled Israel, he is under no pressing domestic need of a demonstration of leadership at this time. So I don't know if he's trying to get reinforcement for the hard decision or not. But number four, he says, in the last two weeks, the Netanyahu government has been subjected to acerbic criticism, and listen to this, on the part of one Obama administration official after another. They presented Israel as having fallen into the hands of right-wing extremists who are engaged in a mad race to suppress the judiciary and diminish the civil rights of women and children, not to mention Palestinians. Thank goodness we don't have that problem over here. Mm-hmm about actions right now to take away civil rights of people in America, you know, mm -hmm. like Israel. To Secretary of State Hillary Clinton went to the unimaginable links when she likened Israel to Iran, which I'm sure went over very well, mm -hmm. because fringe uh, ultra-Orthodox groups in a couple of suburbs in Jerusalem and B'nai Brak were fighting for gender segregation on public transport against the government and the courts. I guess she didn't say anything about them firebombing Christian groups there. Well, I mean, like that's sort of immaterial kind yeah. of fringe stuff. Uh, she was clearly aiming to undermine the Netanyahu government's democratic credentials and therefore his moral legitimacy for going to war to halt Iran's attainment of nuclear weapon. Number four, the unusually powerful U.S. and naval buildups in waters around Syria and Iran. Washington sought in late November to give the impression that the George H.W. Bush carrier strike group was anchored off Marseille when it was spotted in the eastern Mediterranean opposite Syria. Moscow then rushed to Syria's defense by airlifting 72 anti-ship uh, Yakont missiles uh, to Damascus. These water-skimming weapons can hit naval targets at a distance of 300 kilometers. After that, the Bush, whose freedom to approach Syrian or Lebanese shores had been curtailed by the new weapon reaching Syria, departed to an unknown destination by the USS Carl Vinson strike group took up position opposite of Iran. I mean, they're right there in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. I mean, just they're they're getting ready to do it. Can you imagine how nervous you would be on board there? I mean, they, maybe they're supremely confident in their defensive methods. Well, uh, you know, gosh. The, the United States... It'd be like the tomahawks flying off of there. But. Yeah, the stuff that we know about as far as, like, weaponry, yeah. you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the stuff that right. they go, they go, it's not a worry that people know about this. Right, and they've you been know. planning this for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, you know. There might be a lot of Iranian stuff <coughs> coming that just sort of stops in midair and just falls down in the water when it gets a few feet away from the ship or something. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. One yeah. of the things, reading... Four or five years ago, and when they had that sort of war, I guess it was in 06 or 07, um, yeah. the Israeli helicopters had this had this pod where it had a separate like it had a separate gun on it that it would def it would detect a muzzle flash anywhere on the horizon, yeah. immediate and immediately within seconds return fire. And they, yeah. the the, yeah, air, yeah. the the pilot had to do nothing except flip the on switch. I think I'm familiar with those. Kind of at least on ground vehicles. Yeah. Well, um, it's the same thing, but, you know, you yeah. just sort of raise the The ones I've seen has a turret that can actually knock out like an RPG or something like that as it's coming to the vehicle. <coughs> in midair. Take it out in midair. <coughs> wow. Um, you know, the other thing I'm wondering, um, let me just wrap this up here real quick. I didn't okay. mean to choke you up on that. Moscow is also planning hide-and-seek with its only air carrier, Admiral Kuznikov. Do they only have one aircraft carrier? 
I'm surprised. <coughs> They've got the a couple, but only one that runs well. It was announced that the vessel would set sail for the Mediterranean on December 6th, but on November 25th, it was sighted passing Malta and checking past Cyprus four days later on its way to join the flotilla of three Russian-guided missile destroyers already off Syria. Mm-hmm. Neither the U.S. or Russia would have concentrated two powerful fleets in the proximity of Syria and Iran unless they were certain a military uh, conflagration was imminent. While any of the prime movers, Washington, Moscow, Tehran, Israel, and Bashar Assad, may be at the last moment step back from the brink of regional war. At the moment, there's no sign of this happening. You know, um, I'm curious to see if if uh, the Russian pres- presence would actually keep the Americans from doing something. They mm-hmm. might off the coast of Syria. They may not in the Persian Gulf. But if they would actually stop them from doing something, mm-hmm. uh, they may not. Well... Uh, uh, you know the 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 worrisome thing you know with Russian naval stuff is not so much they the problem is is like you said they sort of have a lack of aircraft carriers they don't have a lot of yeah. able they don't have a big ability to sort of what's called project power mm-hmm. they have a lot of destroyers because they've got a wide coast and yeah. you know civil defense and sort of military defense is kind of their first thing yeah. but you know like you said they just don't have a big yeah. big carrier sort of thing to project yeah. project power. So, you know, Turkey's another wild card. Don't know what they're going to do in this. Yeah. But what I wonder is, um, I don't think you mentioned some of these weapons that Israel has. Mm-hmm. They don't play their cards with everything normally. Mm-hmm. Because once you put it on the table, everybody knows you have it. Mm-hmm. And you got to live with the ramifications. So they've been waiting for the big one mm-hmm. before they wheel out what they really got. And I'm wondering if they're seeing this as the big one. Could be. In other words, it's going to be so huge an impact. Mm-hmm. Now, if they, unless they use something big like their nukes, uh, if if the U.S. is neutralized by the Russian presence, which I doubt they'd be in the Persian Gulf, but at least partially neutralized, mm-hmm. Iran is so big that that the, all the sorties, I think they said they'd take a thousand sorties of Israeli aircraft to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I mean, something that takes a while. And they're going to be getting missiles, all sorts of missiles at them in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So this could be bad Bad deal. And the other thing I wondered about when you have have ships like these ones out in the Persian Gulf is is the power brokers that be are they setting up another USS Liberty? Well, that's that's really the, that's really the big thing. I mean, remember remember what what some of the NSA people said is that there were uh, there were uh, U.S. planes on standby that had nuclear weapons ready to nuke Cairo mm-hmm. because they were going to blame. They the were weapons. already in the air. I saw the documentary. <clears throat> the BBC, they were in route. Wow. Yeah, they were in route. Well, the uh, the point is, yeah, the, the point obviously is they were using that as a as a mm-hmm. precursor to nuke somebody. Uh, the other side to that is, you know, um, you know, who knows what God has up his hands, mm-hmm. up his sleeve, you know. Sleeve. It's such an odd, you know, the the sovereignty of God is obviously, you know, we could do. Mm-hmm. We've done almost 300 shows now, and you mm-hmm. could we could well, do at least everybody agrees talking. on that topic. <laughs> yeah, it's really sort of yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. We've we've talked at length in, in you know off mm-hmm. air, sort of my my various theories on the interpretive grid of mm-hmm. comparative denominational theology, and everybody sort of tends to depending on what you put the center on the center of, of your interpretive mm-hmm. grid really depends on where you see God mm-hmm. in the in the center of uh, His sovereignty and His influence over human affairs, mm-hmm. and so um, it's really hard to say because everybody's. The sovereignty of God is not something that's agreed upon or even can really sort of be agreed upon. You look at the mm-hmm. Old Testament. He was 
he was, uh, unless you want to make God sort of semi-malicious, he would take, uh, he would ask questions and take whatever somebody said to him and go, okay, well, that's what we'll do. Mm-hmm. You know, Amos and, yes. you know, First Kings 22, other places like that. Um, but that sort of doesn't fit into the grid of a, of a Calvinistic sort of sovereignty. Yet on the other hand, you know, the USS Liberty, you know, it it sustained a whole heck of a lot of damage and didn't sink. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, which actually the people most grateful for that, in addition to the survivors on board, were the people of Cairo. Yeah, because they would not be here amongst us if that was the case. They'd have a U.S. nuke. Well, you know, on them. one of the thing that, things that Robert Hyde has said on occasion is that you know. When innocent people cry out, God hears them. Mm-hmm. And he didn't look at their skin color or anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever... he does love the United States more. Well, that's true because we're yeah. exceptional. Yeah. But uh, you got another story for us. I do. Okay. Many more stories. I don't even know where to begin. Well, you're supposed to prioritize them. Okay, well, that's good. I did. Um, let's see. Um, I sort of have like a like a little twofer here. I'll just read two paragraphs, and then we'll sort of compare and contrast a little bit. All right, whatever that um, is. An 85-year-old woman may sue the TSA after being strip-searched at JFK Airport. You mm-hmm. may have this yep. maybe heard. Right? been in the news. Yep. Um, and I'll just read a paragraph. Most of our listeners are sort of in, you know, they mm-hmm. probably know the outline of this. An 85-year-old Long Island grandmother says she plans to sue the TSA after a humili- humiliating strip search on Tuesday by agents at JFK Airport. Lenore Zimmerman, who lives in Long Beach, that's Long Beach, New mm-hmm. Jersey, uh, says she was on her way to a 1 p.m. flight at Fort Lauderdale, well, maybe it isn't Long Beach, New Jersey, uh, when security whisked her to a private room and took off her clothes. Uh, I walk with a walker. I really look like a terrorist, she says sarcastically. I'm tiny. I weigh 110 pounds, 107 without clothes, and I was strip searched. So imagine that. You know, 85-year-old woman yeah. getting the getting the finger of freedom. Hmm. Um, TSA fin- uh, spokesman Lisa Farbstein said a review of closed-circuit TV footage from the airport shows proper procedures were followed. But Zimmerman, whose, hu- whose hunchback puts her at four foot eleven. Says her ordeal began after her son Bruce drove her to the JetBlue terminal for the Florida flight. She lives in a warm coconut creek uh, during the winter. She checked her bags, waited for a wheelchair, and parted ways with her doting son, her only immediate relative. When Zimmerman reached a security checkpoint, she asked if she could forego the advanced image technology screening equipment, fearing it might interfere with her defibrillator. She said she normally gets patted down, but this time she says two female agents escorted to a private to a private room and began to remove her clothes. Uh, uh, I was outraged, she said, as she tried to lift a lightweight walker off her lap. She says the metal bars banged against her leg and blood trickled from a gash. My sock was soaked with blood. I was bleeding like a stuck pig. She says a TA, TSA agent showed no sympathy, instead pulling down her pants and asking her to raise her arms. Why are you doing this, she asked the agents, who did not respond. The TSA claims the footage does not show any sign of the injury. Our screening procedures are conducted in a manner designed to treat all passengers with dignity, respect, and courtesy. You know, mm-hmm. including yeah. getting them to drop trow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with that in mind... Here's another story. Supreme Court to consider the arrest of a Cheney critic. Right. Okay. Uh, the Supreme Court on Monday agreed to decide whether Secret Service agents protecting, and I'll, that should be in quotes, 
Mm. Uh, Vice President Dick Cheney may be sued for violating the free speech rights of a member of the public who made critical remarks about the Bush administration war policies. Um, a Secret Service agent said he heard Stephen Howard say into a cell phone that he planned to ask Mr. Cheney how many kids he's killed today. Mr. Howard's later approached Mr. Cheney and mm. said the administration's policies in Iraq are disgusting. Mr. Howard's then touched Mr. Cheney on the shoulder in a gesture variously described as an open-handed pat, a slap, and a strike, depending on who you talk to, that caused the vice president's soldier, shoulder to visibly dip. Confronted by the Secret Service, Mr. Howard's denied touching Mr. Cheney and said if you don't want other people sharing their opinions, you should have him avoid public places. Agents then arrested Mr. Howards for assault and turned him over to local authorities. He was charged with harassment under state law, but those charges were later dropped. So anyway, he's suing mm -hmm. now suing um, the Secret Service agents, saying the arrest was unlawful. Mm -hmm. It's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, what I find interesting is here's an 85-year-old lady who's getting, mm -hmm. getting you know, mm -hmm. basically totally – she's getting strip searched yeah. without, you know, with, uh. without comment. And here's a guy that merely touches the hem of of the mm -hmm. garment of one of our anointed dear leaders mm -hmm. and is being, you know, he got immediately arrested by the Secret right. Service agents. That's a good comparison of the two. That's a very interesting. Stop and think about the ramifications of, of that, you yeah. know. Um, Pays to be powerful, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, there's a video a couple years ago about a guy. He got a video camera out and he saw George Bush Sr. in a in a pizza place somewhere in Texas. And he, he was like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go do it. And he got in there and was basically yelling at him from across the room, like, how yeah. many kids? There's a bunch of blood on your hands, you know, yeah. and using some expletives and yeah. stuff and some salty language. And uh, the Secret Service agents basically, they basically pulled their gun out and they said, you need to go outside right now. And he, mm. and he said, I have a First Amendment right. And they, they said, well, we have a First Amendment right to blow your head off. You know, and mm -hmm. um, it sort of went on and on. Like it finally went outside, and then they took his camera away, mm -hmm. and then he posted it on YouTube. Yeah. So, um, at the end of the day, you know, you know, it's funny. Our country was formed to get away from a country where they had that kind of aristocracy that were untouchable, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. And they formed America so that everybody would be more egalitarian, and you could. Mm -hmm. Everyone would be equally accountable. Mm -hmm. You can see it's changed. Yeah, it's back to the old uh, power. George Washington had to wait for a, George Washington had to wait for a seat in the restaurant in his first term as president because people refused to get up because they said he works for us, so he said he's got to wait for a table. Yeah, yeah, I pay his salary. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't quite work that way. Now, now people wait for hours at the airport when they get a haircut out on the runway. Mm -hmm. Not even the, not even the, not even the president, a candidate. You know, yeah. that was that was Jonathan Edwards, wasn't it? Right? Was it? I was thinking it was Bill Clinton. I couldn't remember. Oh, okay. Well, I can't remember. I was. Okay. Uh, well, that's fair. Yeah, but you know. Well, speaking of that, would you like a little political discourse? Yep. This comes off another. Um, a little bit more mainstream Israeli newspaper mm -hmm. source, Haaretz. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is this is Haaretz, Israeli mm -hmm. site. Um, it says, Republicans in Israel, too much love can kill you. Okay, so this is an Israeli view <laughs> of what the Republicans are doing right now in the debates, okay? Uh, 
It says Republic. This is again an Israeli view. Mm-hmm. Republicans are saying they'll attack Iran for Israel's sake. This might not only prove to be bad for the Jews in the long run, but could also come back to haunt the Republicans themselves. In the first Gulf War, um, let me see if I made a note right here. Um, in the first Gulf War, in 1991, and once again in the war against Iraq in 2003. Israel was asked by the U.S. administration to maintain a low profile in order to avoid the perception that America was fighting with Israel or on its behalf. Mm -hmm. Both George Bush's senior and junior considered it prudent to relegate Israel to the sidelines, even when it was under direct attack, as was the case in 91, in order to help establish international coalitions and to maintain public support for the war, especially in the Muslim world. In both cases, Israel complied. Which, you know, is very interesting because Ron Paul now says that Israel should be right. for I mean, should have the right for their own sovereignty and their own self-determination and what they choose to do. Mm-hmm. And here he is one that's saying that they shouldn't have their hands tied to protect themselves. But yet he was just rejected as the only candidate rejected by the Jewish Republican Consortium. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just was- recently had a debate and they <laughs> isolated him out that he couldn't come even though he's the one that wants to give them free reign to protect themselves. I saw a really interesting, provocatively worded article that said, Ron Paul, the only real Zionist. (laughs) And I read it, and that was essentially like, here's a guy that actually believes that they should have the right to protect themselves. Right. He also believes we shouldn't just be handing money to them or their enemies. Yeah, he makes that point, But they're sovereign. Yeah. They're sovereign. They should have their right to do their business for their citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay, it says, of course, such precautions won't be relevant if a Republican-led U.S. administration should ever contemplate attacking Iran in order to prevent it from attaining nuclear weapons. After all, the contenders for the Republican presidential nomination, with the glaring exception of the neo-isolationist Ron Paul, which I think intervention, non-interventionalist would be the proper term, but mm-hmm. are on the record as saying, all the rest of them, that if America attacks Iran, it will be, first and foremost, in order to save Israel, as Texas Governor Rick Perry framed it. Mm-hmm. Professor Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer can already add a brief appendix to their highly controversial 2007 book, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, that will contain a transcript of last week's CNN Republican foreign policy debate, followed by the letters QED, which was to be demonstrated. Hmm. In other words, it was a it was basically a live demonstration of their premise in their book. Again, this is an Israeli saying this, mm-hmm. okay? Herman Cain said that the U.S. would join Israel in attacking Iran as long as the Israelis came up with a credible plan. Newt Gingrich said the U.S. would bomb Tehran only as a last recourse, but would be happy to team up with Israel in a conventional attack. Michelle Bachman has already indicated that the Pentagon should present war plans in order to rescue millions of Israelis who are on the precipice of losing their lives. So we could kill millions of other people in the region. They're on the precipice of losing their lives. Uh, Rick Perry Mm -hmm. said, if we're going to be serious about saving Israel, we better get serious about Syria and Iran. Rick Santorum made up for lost time in the debate by declaring later, I'd be working with Israel and be very clear with Iran that we are preparing a military strike. Mitt Romney thinks that the answer to Iran is to go to Israel to sh- uh, to show the world we care about that country and that region. And former Utah Governor John Huntsman, usually the most cautious Republican debater on matters of foreign policy, said, Our interest is to ensure that Israel, that Iran does not go nu- nuclear. Our interest in the Middle East is Israel, not Saudi Arabia. 
not the Gulf Emirates. These are not America's mm. interest. Not the Maghreb. Not sure what that is. Not the Horn That's of Africa. Northern Africa. Okay. Uh, not a stable Iraq. Not a moderate Egypt. Not the free flow of oil. Not containment of China and Russia. Not Islamic moderation. Not even the fight against jihadist terrorism. Just Israel. Okay. Again, mm-hmm. Israelite voice here. Uh, Israeli. Of course. One can well understand why many Jews and Israelis might cavell, or which is Yiddish for being with joy, at such a blanket, unequivocal expression of love and support for Israel, especially at a time when the saying, the whole world is against us, has become a widely accepted axiom, and President Obama is perceived by many as being indifferent to Israeli interest at best, if not actually hostile at worst. Mm-hmm. But, quote, too much love will kill you, as Queen's Brian May once wrote, and these protestations of absolute devotion may come back one day to haunt not only Jews in Israel, but also Republicans themselves. As the flurry of anti-Israel tweets following last week's CNN debate showed, many Americans were taken aback at what could easily be portrayed as the subordination of American foreign policy to Israeli interest and the predominance of the Israel-Iran issue over such minor foreign policy issues as China, the Arab Spring, or the Eurozone debt crisis, which weren't even mentioned. Hmm. I, I find it interesting that, that an Israeli is mentioned saying this. In a yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that they're saying that we've subordinated our entire interest to Israel. Uh, he says, and even though polls show that a solid majority of Americans support Israel, especially when compared to the Palestinians, it is highly doubtful whether such support stretches to include a conflict that might plunge America and the rest of the world into a political and economic crisis of unprecedented proportions. Of course, the main reason for the current Republican love fest with Israel isn't so much the Jewish lobby, the Jewish vote, or even Jewish campaign contributions, but rather the intense courtship of the Israel-adoring Christian evangelical vote which is likely to play a pivotal role in the upcoming Republican primaries. These voters view oaths of loyalty to Israel as a qualifying benchmark for all aspiring candidates, and they are hardly likely to be deterred by the possibility of conflagration in the Middle East, which is, after all, but a necessary dispensationalist end-of-days landmark on the road to Armageddon, as Timothy Weber's 2004 book explains. But for many less Israelocentric Americans, as well as for the hundreds of millions of people throughout the world who are closely monitoring the Republican race, the unabashed and unqualified Republican embrace of Israel at the expense of other no less critical issues for America's well-being might very well be seen as confirming the delusional conspiratorial descriptions of rabid Jubaters. This might, <laughs> yeah. Funny. Uh, in funny other words, phrase. you know, it plays into their hands. You know. Yeah. He says this might not only prove to be bad for the Jews in the long run, but could also come back to haunt the Republicans themselves should the issue of Iran still be on the table if and when one of them is sworn into office on January 20th, 2013. A Republican president, no less than President Obama, would have to contend with widespread opposition amongst America's top military brass and its economic and business leaders to a war that would ignite a region-wide conflagration precipitate a dramatic rise in the price of oil, bring about a sharp increase in the U.S. budget deficit, and potentially push the economies of both the U.S. and Europe over the edge and into the abyss. Which of the two potential presidents would be more inclined and more capable of weathering such a confrontation is certainly a matter of opinion and debate. But a Republican president 
unlike Obama, would be handicapped from the outset by the inverted Nixon to China principle, which makes it harder for right-wing presidents to mobilize public opinion to go to war. Uh, and then uh, doubly encumbered by the Bush legacy, internally and in the international arena, where memories of what was widely perceived as the former president's go-it-alone, devil-may-care, cowboyish foreign policy that left America virtually isolated on the world stage haven't been as surly erased as they may have appeared to be among America's conservatives. Well, I would I would amend his saying a little bit that by the terrorism scare, that constant you know, terrorism fear mm-hmm. has helped them sell wars. I love, the, I love the verbiage of this, I yeah, must say. From an Israeli yeah. uh, columnist. It says, and even though there is a compelling argument to be made for U.S. military invention against Iran in order to safeguard a wide range of vital American interests, including Israel, a Republican president would automatically be judged by his own Israeli-inspired declarations of love and war. The Iranian propaganda ministry, one can rest assured, has already archived the videotape of the Republican debates as a public relations weapon to be drawn just when the time is right. And while Saudi Arabia and the Gulf oil countries would be sure to lend Washington discreet tactical as well as financial support under any and all circumstances, the volatile Arab street... Once maligned as insignificant, but now a critical element in determining the future of many Arab regimes, would easily fall prey to anti-Israeli incitement, as would left-leaning public opinion throughout the Muslim world and Western Europe. This would be true in any case, of course, but doubly so if a Republican president was at the helm. One can argue what true intentions lay behind Obama's statement uh, in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. This is what he said there. That those who seek peace cannot stand idly by as nations arm themselves for nuclear war. But there should be no doubt that it is Obama who would stand a far better chance than any Republican of mustering international support, of enlisting coalition partners, and of minimizing Arab rage in case America goes to war against Iran. In fact, in a twist of irony that is surely bitter for Obama bashers, it is the president's perceived distance from Israel and his portrayal as being even-handed that places him in a superior position to advance to what is indeed, uh, when all is said and done, a critical Israeli interest that is still best served by maintaining a judicious low profile rather than engaging in short-sighted, politically motivated saber-rattling. Perhaps that is another reason for Israel to strike now. Why Obama is still in power rather than later when a Republican president might find that he has tied his own hands in primary time electioneering. Sorry, that was really long, but it was good. That was a very interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought it was good. Israeli perspective that you don't hear in our news. Mm-hmm. You won't hear that American evangelicals talking about Israel views. No, I get all that they're a little worried about. They kind of get all farty about uh, <laughs> other stuff. Let's oh. see. Okay. Here's a good one. U.S. launders, U.S. agents launder Mexican profits of drug cartels. Did you see this one? No. That's pretty ridiculous. Uh, this is from another one of those like fringe conspiracy websites called the New York Times. Okay. Uh, under, heard of them, but. Undercover American narcotics agents have laundered or smuggled millions of dollars in drug proceeds at as part of the wash as part of Washington's expanding role in Mexico's fight against drug cartels according to current and former federal law enforcement officials the agents primarily with the drug enforcement administration have handled shipments of hundreds of thousands of dollars in illegal cash across borders those officials have said 
to identify how criminals' organizations move their money, where they keep their assets, and most important, who their leaders are. So let me get this straight. They're saying, we're laundering money for the drug cartels so we can see how they move their money, their assets, and who their leaders are. That's that's our plan. Mm-hmm. We're going to launder their money so we can figure out their organization. Yeah. How many people, like pedophiles, when they get caught with child porn on their computers, say, I was investigating who the bad guys were. So that's why I went inside so I could figure out who they were. That's what I was really up to. Mm-hmm. You hear that a lot. You do. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, you know, that's what, um, oh, who's the guy that founded Scientology? L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard. He said he, uh, that's the reason why he hung out with Jack Parsons and was doing the occult workings, mm-hmm. was that he wanted to infiltrate them for Navy intelligence to find out what these guys were doing. And that's why he did all that demonic magical work. Sweet. So it's a common tactic, mm-hmm. particularly of people who've been caught. Mm-hmm. They said agents had deposited the drug proceeds in accounts designated by traffickers or in shell accounts set up by agents. Now, if, this is the same rationale as Fast and Furious, right? Yeah. We'll give them guns to shoot people so then we can see where the guns went. Mm-hmm. Okay. The officials said that while the DEA conducted such operations in other countries, it began doing so in Mexico and only, only in the past few years. So let me read that again. The official said that while the DEA conducted such operations in other countries, it began doing so in Mexico only in the past few years, which means they've been doing it in other countries for a long, mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. Well, we know about Air America and South Asia and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Doing it, yeah. This, this is, this, that's what I found so stunning about this. If you just read this. What they admit. Yeah. If you read this clearly with, like, like what language really means and like what mm-hmm. signifiers are and verbiage and semiotics. It's it's like it basically an admission that Air America, mm-hmm. you know, flying the Carowin for Shanghai check, uh, Hoffman International, yeah, flying tigers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all of this stuff. It's it's just a it's like a total admission of it all. Which, how much of this can you show to our evangelical friends to get them to show this whole war on drugs is a farce? You know, because that's a lot of reasons why they don't like somebody like, say, like a Ron Paul, mm-hmm. is because he understands these things mm-hmm. and, and admits to the truth of it. But they, no, 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 we got to have those, which, you know, maybe they're doing it to support the CIA since the CIA, you know, gets a lot of their budget from this stuff. Well, why do the evangelicals well, not we, see this? Well, it's it's scary to understand that in the Old Testament that it is Yahweh is the God that repeatedly is the God that blinds people's eyes. Yeah, that's not a good. That's yeah. not a good precedent when yeah. you when you tell people show something and they go, I'm not seeing that. Yeah, I, I will not look at that. It's a sign they've been judged. I wouldn't go that. Well, maybe yeah. Of some form, yeah. they've already been of judged. Some form, yeah. Because usually when I see that's happened, God has brought down judgment mm-hmm. on. I'm I'm not saying that there may it may be a judgment for a period, mm-hmm. but or it could be permanent. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But usually that's a sign when God has given people over. Hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot I could say about that. It's interesting that some of my biblical studies have sort of led to looking at spiritual warfare in in the view of there's there's multiple sort of layers and levels, and mm-hmm. one of them is sort of biblical covenants that people unknowingly make with yeah. their verbiage or something, or hmm. you know maybe sort of giving themselves over to something that leads to problems later on because yeah. they've made sort of a more robust hmm. sort of covenant you know mm-hmm. uh, anyway it's a tie you know at the actual the actual concrete 
theology behind, um, you know, behind like, um, you know, generational sin and yeah. those other things. That's a little bit more. It's, it's not very robust, in my opinion. And maybe yeah. this is one of those things. At any rate, right. um, but and this is not to promote drug use by any stretch. You and I both stand no. strongly against it for spiritual issues as well as health. But the fact is, the current status quo is meant to expand the evil beyond just merely taking drugs. Mm-hmm. It actually creates a black market, it expands violence, mm-hmm. and it lets other evil acts that are unrelated to drug use go on mm-hmm. because of what they've done with making black markets. Word to the motherland. Okay. Oh, snap. The high-risk activities raise delicate questions, not so delicate. Why are you guys working with the enemy, funneling their money? Uh, the high-risk activities raise delicate questions about the agency's effectiveness in bringing down drug kingpins. Uh, I would say not that delicate. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Um, underscore diplomatic concerns about Mexican sovereignty and blur the line between surveillance and facilitating crime. As it launders drug money, the agency often allows cartels to continue their operations over months or even years before making seizures or arrests, if at all. I put that last part in there, mm-hmm. if at all. Um Agency officials declined to publicly discuss details about their work, citing concerns about compromising their investigations. But Michael S. Vigil, a former senior agent uh, who is currently working for a private contracting company called Mission Essential Personnel, said, We tried to make sure there was always close supervision of these operations so so that we were accomplishing our objectives and agents weren't laundering money for the sake of laundering money. Right. Another former official who asked not to be identified speaking publicly about delicate operations said, My rule was that if we are going to launder money, we better show results. Otherwise, the DEA could wind up being the largest money or launderer in the business, and that money results in violence and death. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty much it right there. Yeah. You know, just knock out the, the show results part, and then it's, uh, it's perfect. Those are precisely the kinds of concerns members of Congress have raised about a gun smuggling operation, Fast and Furious. Um, former DEA agent, DEA officials regret, reject comparisons between letting guns and money walk away. Money, they said, poses far less of a threat to public safety, and unlike guns, it can lead more directly to the top ranks of criminal organizations. These are not the people whose faces are known on the streets, says Robert Mazur, a former DEA official and the author of a book about his years as an undercover agent inside the Medellin cartel in Colombia. They are super insulated. Uh, and the only way to get to them is to follow their money. Why can't you just do that by looking at bank account numbers? It's so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's so, Man, didn't we just read an article a couple of years ago about how the United States essentially seized all of the numbers and the owners of, uh, of uh, uh, Swiss bank accounts and took them? And they can't do this to a bunch of drug smugglers? You know what made it hard to get Al Capone and those guys was because the police force was already on their payroll. This is so, oh man. I better. I'm gonna. I'm gonna finish reading it, but I'm all spun up now. Uh, I'll, I'll. I'll finish reading the first page. Another former drug official uh, offered this explanation for laundering operations: How can I buy a nice boat on the money that they pay me? I need to put my kids through college. I need. I'm just making that mm-hmm. up. <laughs> Sorry. You need to make that clear to people. Yeah, so they I'm don't making get it confused. up. Okay, here back to the real writing. Okay. 
Building up the evidence to connect the cash to drugs and connect the first cash pickup to a cartel's command and control is a very time-consuming process. These people aren't running a drugstore in downtown L.A. that we can go and lock the doors and place a seizure sticker on the window. They are sophisticated international operations that practice very tight security. Right. And as far as the Mexican cartels go, they operate in a corrupt country from cities that the cops can't even go into. The laundering operations that the United States conducts elsewhere, about 50 so-called attorney general exempt operations, are underway around the world. Let me read that again. Mm. 50 so-called attorney general exempt operations are underway around the world, has been forbidden in Mexico after American customs agents conducted a cross-border sting without notifying Mexican authorities in 1998, which was how most American undercover work was conducted there up to that point. Attorney General exempt means that nobody <clears throat> in the government has a right to check the legal legality of what they're doing. I would so assume that means. so, yeah. I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know nothing, but that's sort of their thing. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, that's, that's kind of the overview. I mean, yeah. you know, here we are, 50... Uh, exempt operations, you know, probably involving laundering money for for criminals. Mm-hmm. Governments are illegally overthrown with all this. Uh-huh. Um, we set up Karzai, whose brother is the drug kingpin of Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this he, is he how got, the world he got works. capped recently. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, he crossed the line just like in the mob, you know. Uh but, you know, if you bring this up with your friends at church, they'll say, you just want to be a druggie. Why do you want to drug everybody? It's like, well, this this is the currency. Drugs are the currency of evil work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about shooting stuff up in your arm. I'm talking about the evil work done by people who don't touch the drug, who just use it as the currency for their other evil mm-hmm. plans. It's money and power. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, can I bring something back a little bit more uh, bring it on political? Home. Do, 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 bring it on home. Do, do, this is do, 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 bring it on home. This is like a seventies kind of groove kind of thing you got there, huh? Okay. Let me get on to the uh, story here. This is from Newsweek. Just okay? talking about future. <laughs> Hush your mouth. Uh, evangelicals flocking toward Newt Gingrich. How the, the New Ager Rabalic. Kabbalic yes. guy mm-hmm. who worships crystals. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, those are our lead, our religious leaders of America that, you know, who's are supposed to God, point the way to the rest of the America. Who's the God who blinds people's eyes to the truth? You need to record Just this. Just talking about Newt. It says, how the religious right is learning how to love the adulterous, thrice-married former speaker. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Can I read the story? Okay, all right, all right. Like many evangelicals in Iowa, Steve Deese, an influential conservative radio host, is wrestling with the possibility that Newt Gingrich may be the most viable standard bearer for family family values voters in the next election. He certainly lived them out. Yeah, I guess. Uh, um, oh, who 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 was the uh, hustler, uh, pornographer, publisher? What's his name? I don't know. Larry uh, Flint. Larry Flint. Yeah, I guess he's unavailable. To get the value voters vote this week. So we got Newt Gingrich. Um, he says it's a conundrum, he says, that many others are also grappling with. Maybe a guy in the race that would make the best president is on his third marriage, he says. How do we reconcile that? One sentence of him trying. He says, I see a lot of parallels between King David and Newt Gingrich. I always like when they look for a biblical justification. 
two extraordinary men gifted by God, yeah, extraordinary, uh, whose lives include very high highs and very low lows, D said. David, after all, committed adultery with the ravishing Bathsheba, then had her husband killed, uh, amongst other transgressions. The Bible makes room for complicated, morally compromised heroes. Now Christian conservatives, desperate for an alternative to Mitt Romney, are learning to do so as well. Because they would rather have a completely immoral guy like this, Roman mm-hmm. Catholic, than they would a Mormon, I guess. Yep. Okay, says under normal circumstances, Gingrich would have some real problems with the social conservative community, says Tony Perkins, head of the Family Research Council. But these aren't normal circumstances. Now, let, you know, it's one thing if they reject Ron Paul. Even though as a Bible-believing Christian, I completely have no problem with Ron Paul. They do, because he didn't mm-hmm. love war enough, which I think is a part of the Christian belief, is to love war. But, you know, they've got people that hit it right down the middle for them, in Rick Santorum and in uh, Bachman, Michelle Bachman. But it's like, it's not the issues for these Christians. Even yeah, it's if it's being part of the in-club. It's being in power. Yeah. It's the power thing. It has nothing to do with being right on the issues. Um, it, it says... Uh, until recently, there was an assumption that Gingrich's marital history would make it impossible for him to show up religious conservatives, especially conservative women. Such voters dominate the Iowa caucuses, whose decision on January 3 will do much to determine whether the Gingrich bubble is more enduring than those of Donald Trump. Michelle Bachman, Rick Perry, and Herman Cain. He says, I'm one of those who said Newt would have a large gender gap, and that even uh, though men might be more willing to forgive and move on, Frank Quite frankly, I thought that women would be less likely to do so, said Bob Vanderplatz, head of the Iowa Family Leader, the state's major religious right organization. After all, it's not just that Gingrich is on his third marriage. He famously divorced his first wife while she was suffering from cancer, a cancer he'd previously used to garner sympathy in campaign speeches. I bet him and McCain high-five about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They come from the same block. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay, uh, let's see. He cheated on his second wife with congressional aide Callista Bicek, now his third wife, while leading the impeachment battle against Bill Clinton. Nice. Yeah, he was cheating on her while he got after Clinton for doing it. Mm-hmm. Like Senator Larry Craig, he of the attempted uh, airport bathroom trist, uh, trist. Uh, Gingrich's personal life has become a liberal punchline, proof of Republican hypocrisy on family values. How can voters whose main priority is the restoration of the traditional family rally around him? Yet on the Saturday before Thanksgiving, when most of the GOP candidates gathered in the First Federated Church in Des Moines for the Family uh, Leader Forum, the consensus was that Gingrich came out on top. Partly that's because he's been preparing his theocentric message for a while, particularly since converting to Catholicism, mm-hmm. Calista's religion, in 2009, which he said has strengthened his appreciation for the role of faith in public life. Now, you know where he converted from, right? Who's the Republican? You know what he was before? He really likes Kabbalah. Newt! Well, yeah, I mean, he's a new ager, really, but mouth. I mean, his officially listed Christian faith, you know what it was before then? What was it? It was a Baptist. Oh, really? So he went from Baptist to Catholicism, thinking that he was advancing spiritually. You know, he said he had a spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. It was to embrace the teaching of Catholicism over a Baptist teaching. Sweet. So if you all want to know what 
what he's thinking about Christianity, that's the direction he's going. In recent years, his writing and speaking have become increasingly religious and even apocalyptic. Um, uh, discussing a great Christ, uh, world historical showdown between the forces of Christian civilization and those he calls secular socialism, which weakens society, allowing the spread of radical Islam. Uh, he says, a country which has been since 1963 relentlessly in the courts driving God out of public life shouldn't be surprised at all the problems we have because we've in fact attempted to create a secular country, which I think is frankly a nightmare, he said at the family leader debate. Most of his audience surely knew that 63 was a year that they banned prayer in school. After the debate, moderator Frank Luntz, oh, one of my favorite guys mm-hmm. there, yeah. held a focus group with 25 conservative Iowa mothers. Vanderplatz was shocked at their enthusiasm for Gingrich. Though they don't embrace or endorse or condone his personal past, they might be more willing to get over that if he's the best one to lead to preserve the America they want for their children. Two days later, the family leader came up with a list of four finalists for its coveted endorsement. Now, these are like biblical family values people, okay? Here's their list. Mm -hmm. Michelle Bachman, Rick Santorum, Rick Perry, and Gingrich. Okay, those are... Yeah, there's a few people missing on there, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, that he made the cut was striking, given that the family leader is asking all candidates to sign a pledge titled the Marriage Vow, huh. which says we acknowledge and regret the widespread hypocrisy of many who defend marriage yet turn a blind eye toward the epidemic of infidelity and the anemic condition of marriages in their own community. So he's willing to sign that. Just talking about Newt. Uh-huh. Who's the man who loves... To wear skull caps and worship crystals. Newt! Gingrich, just talking about Newt. Gingrich benefits, of course, from the powerful Christian narrative of sin and deliverance. These voters believe in forgiveness. They believe in redemption, says Ralph Reed, uh, who leads the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Of course, it's important to Ralph because he was the one taking uh, casino money. Who's the, the Christian man who really leader. likes to take a bunch of gambling money from behind your back? Ralph! You're going to... Do this in a record album or something. After all, he points out, it was evangelicals who helped elect Ronald Reagan, our first and only divorce president. The redemption narrative allows evangelicals to see themselves as fundamentally different from the feminists who rallied behind Bill Clinton because he was able to advance her agenda in, in spite of his personal failings. Tamara Scott is the Iowa Director of Concerned Women for America and became co-chair of Bachman's campaign, but she has nothing bad to say about Gingrich and resists Clinton comparisons. Here's the difference, she says. Bill Clinton denied what he did. He didn't repent. Of course, none of this is to say that Gingrich has the religious right locked up. It's just that he it won't be a sex life that thwarts him. Perkins points out, you know, this whole election cycle, the last two, to the whole point of it, I think, has been to expose the, the total depravity and the total uselessness of our evangelical leadership. You know what's funny is having a discussion with uh, various, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't check them all, but the assumption was is everybody in the discussion group was uh, of some sort of a various denominations of evangelical Christian. And one of them, after I cornered them in, the, in sort of a yeah. mild-mannered debate, they finally said, they finally said, "Look, I don't think we can ca- we can we can pick candidates any longer based on based on morality." Yeah. And I was like, "As a believer, what how can you say that?" Yeah. You know? That's that's so ridiculous. It's one thing I'm trying to make a theocracy, but just general integrity. Yeah. 
You know, just just general integrity. You 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 know, and then they all get upset why he behaved that way when he gets in office. You know, who's the presidential candidate who oh, takes tons of mood altering medication? Pop man, yeah. <laughs> shut your mouth. Now you don't know that's the case. Yeah, she admitted to that she takes a Did lot she? of Zoloft and stuff, doesn't she? Really? Yeah, oh, maybe, so. maybe that's right. Yeah. Uh, Perkins points out that Perkins was the guy from Family Research Council that ran mm-hmm. the value boat or something. Yeah. I went to that they they told Robert Hyde and I privately in the elevator that um, they were disturbed about the win for Ron mm-hmm. Paul and they were going to have to spin the results to the media. To Who's basically the group deceive of them. Christians who like to spin media results? Perkins points out that Gingrich failed to prioritize social issues when he was in the House and he's lately been lambasted for influence peddling on behalf of conservatives uh, in, you know, uh, regarding like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mm-hmm. his show of leniency towards some undocumented immigrants in last week's CNN debate could hurt him as well. Um, he says this isn't a, a, a you know a complete bad position among evangelicals, but it infuriated some on the right who hate the suggestion that a hardline position on immigration is inhumane because they want to kick out you know immigrants. Mm-hmm. People know him, but they don't know everything about him. Says Perkins. They will in the next couple of weeks, and we'll see how well he can withstand that type of scrutiny. Still, he acknowledges anxious anti-Romney conservatives are eager to coalesce behind someone. The bench is getting shallow, he says. The only candidate left that's not been out front is Rick Santorum, and time is short. No mention of Ron Paul, the guy who's been married for, I think, over 50 years to his wife, Mm -hmm. served in the military. Hasn't flip-flopped on positions. He's not under their control. Yep. He doesn't eat out of their hand. That's why they don't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not just saying Who's that the man who doesn't flip-flop and hasn't has a bunch of integrity? And a real Rock ideology. Ball. Okay, got another story with no singing. Without the jingle. No, you don't like the singing? Well, maybe the first few times. but Okay, what's your next priority um, story? Okay, here's one. Oh, this is even a better one. Uh, we've often, we've talked, you know, about how there's been sort of several years, well, several months ago, I mean about a year or more ago, we sort of made mention about how various um, scientists were sort of studying how lithium in the water yeah, like, could be a good right, thing. Right. No, Everybody said, well, of course we shouldn't do that. Did they actually try it in Japan? I thought they'd actually well, they, tried it. Well, uh, they yeah. didn't try it, but they found water that had naturally high levels of lithium. Okay. And we're, you know, just looking at it, seeing, oh. oh, everybody's more docile, you know. Mm. It just occurs okay. naturally in the groundwater. And sure. So we have a little more lithium. Um, this is from another one of those conspiracy mm-hmm. websites called The Irish Times. Okay. Um this is dated the, the 2nd of, of December. Psychiatrist calls for lithium to be added to the water. Um, uh, this is a... Th- I, I, I looked up on this guy, and he's pretty... He's like one of the top psychiatrists in Ireland. Mm, okay. A consultant psychiatrist last night called on government to add lithium salts to the wa- public water supp- supply in a bid to lower the suicide rate and depression among the general population, uh, although they have a fairly low... They, they're, you know, it's, they they have a fairly low um, suicide rate. They they drink mm-hmm. a lot. They do have a lot of depression. Um, but this is interesting, given another story I have. How the BBC reported that the, uh, 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 English police organizations are ye- are gearing up for years of rioting and protests. Mm-hmm. So 
it's very very interesting to sort of make those two connections yeah. and kind of kind of read. Anyway, I'll I'll read it here a little bit. At a mental health forum on depression in rural Ireland, and Annie Stoman, County Clare. I got a friend who lives in County Clare. Hmm. Doctor Musaji Bahamji mm-hmm. said that there is growing scientific evidence that adding trace amounts of the drug lithium to a water supply can lower rates of suicide and depression. Lithium is used to tr- by doctors as a mood stabilizer in treatment for depression. Um, a recent now here's the interesting why I wanted to say this. Uh, for a long time, as we as we said here, nobody's said they've actually tried it. Yeah. Right. Dr. Bomji said, a recent article in the British Journal of Psychiatry found the beneficial uses of lithium when it was added to the water supply in parts of Texas. So it has, that, that's it's, evidence that it's has been added. already in the US. been added, yeah. Wow. Uh, he said that the government should consider a pilot project for a town in Ireland where lithium salts could be added to the water in very small doses and examine the results. He said there was already strong precedent for governments intervening in the operation of public water supply for health benefits by adding fluoride. <laughs> Dr. Bombs, he said well, that it can... Fluoride was the pioneering one that just sort of got that laid the groundwork for the other stuff. Perhaps. Dr. Bomji said that a community would not get hooked on lithium because the doses would be so small. Sure. There but are, it's still enough to have an effect. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing about lithium. People who people respond to it in different ways. Yeah. Somebody who is legitimately bipolar, yeah. you can give them a ton of lithium and it, it will help. In fact, yeah. that's how you che- test if they have certain kinds of bipolar disorders. Yeah. You start giving them lithium and if they pull out of their bipolar phase, yeah. you know, phase mood uh-huh. swings, then they go, okay, well, you're yeah. bipolar. Yeah. Um, in fact, people with certain types of bipolar deficiencies, you give them, if you give them so much um, lithium mm-hmm. that it would kill a normal person, yeah. like that's how you know that they uh-huh. have bipolar. So Plus, they could be a battery, too. Yeah. Like a double. Copper a, top, a little bunny. Yeah, the bunnies, battery. That, that bunny that is like, okay. I'm moving to Ireland. <laughs> doom, 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 doom. It's going around Texas. Doom, 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 doom. Um, no, um, but anyway, the point is, is everybody responds differently. Yeah. Somebody, uh, people who are legitimately depressed to have a legitimate effect on them, you have to give them a higher dose. That same dose is going to have an extremely detrimental effect on another person. Does it affect their mind or just their general health? Both. For those kind of people. Both. Okay. Um, it it makes them it, it, it makes them really really sick. Lithium poisoning is very yeah. serious business. Yeah. It's not something. It's not something undertaken lightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, Finn Gale, TD, and chairman of the Irish Association of Suicidology, hmm. told the forum the average annual suicide rate in Ireland in the 1960s was 64 to 65. I'm going to say that's out of out of a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of people. Yeah, out of a thousand. Yeah, I, I think there there's something. There's something odd there. Uh, he said last year 483 people died by suicide, and if you add up the 123 undetermined deaths, the suicide number is over 600. This compares to 212 who died by road accidents, which is self, which is itself unacceptable. Research shows during mental, during international recessions, the suicide in, rate increases by 25%. Ireland has had the fourth highest suicide rate in Europe. See, this is what I was thinking when you were getting the story, mm-hmm. is that they may have to put this in place in 2012, because if they can no longer keep the House of Cards going economically, and disaster ensues, and 
of the plumet goes off the rock, you're going to have a, just a crazy manic crowd, and they're going to almost have to drug them as they put them in some kind of institutionalized living quarters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just had a thought, and I can't share it on on air. I got to check something out. Okay. Um, Mr. Neville s- said suicide is the most common death for 18 to 24 year old, and accounts for more than those who die from cancer and road accidents combined. I haven't found. I've looked at some of the statistics on that. I find that suspect, mm-hmm. but that's just me. Limerick West deputy said that the attitude in mental health services toward those with mental health problems should be recovery and not containment. Obviously. Mm-hmm. He said, early intervention, you have 90% cure, and late interve- intervention, you have difficulties for life. Mr. Neville said that that with the well-published suicide of footballer Gary Speed, it raised contagion or copycat suicide concerns. Anyway, so there you have it. Mm. Uh, a little bit all over the map, you know, yeah, but interesting yeah. stuff, especially the mm. revelation that they've been lifting yeah, and that's icing a big deal. Texas. That is a big, big deal. Yep. Now now we know why Lithium Paul in, in Texas. the water. Well, Paul Texas, in Texas has been yeah, in such a yeah. good, uh, you know, good mood mm-hmm. when you talk to him. Probably get some lithium out in that spring out there. There he is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Um, guess what? I'm going back to another Israeli magazine story. This has got a little flurry of them. Mm-hmm. And this is a, another war one. I hate to be a broken record, but this will be my last one on the topic. Okay. Um, I found it was interesting where this came from. Uh, the former chief of Mossad, okay, uh. the head security guy, who is you, you consider that probably the, the most hawkish position in the nation of Israel, okay. Mm-hmm. Former Mossad chief says Israeli attack on Iran must be stopped to avert catastrophe. I saw that too. Yeah. yeah. Mir Dagan speaks out against the military offensive in Iran and expresses concern that Defense Minister Barak believes Israel has only less than a year to carry out an attack. Now, he has a longer time frame. You know, who knows, compared to my earlier story, mm-hmm. who knows what reality is. Former Mossad chief Mir Dagan warned Thursday against an Israeli attack on Iran, saying such a move would likely lead to a regional war involving Hezbollah, Hamas, and Syria. I'm cons- now, if anybody would know, it would be the head of, you know, uh, Mossad on mm-hmm. where things are. He says, I'm concerned about possible mistakes, and I prefer to speak out before there is a catastrophe, Degan said in an interview on the Israeli television program, Uvda. 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 Sure he's not a Lutheran? I don't know. Uvda. Yeah, he didn't say Uvda, man. I think that engaging with open eyes in a regional war is warranted only when we are under attack or when the sword is already cutting against our live flesh. It is not an alternative that should be chosen lightly. Isn't that refreshing to hear out of Israel? Of all things, a Mossad leader? Yeah. Let's say you start a regional war only when you're under attack or someone's directly attacking you, I which is what with Christians talk casualties. about, just war. Uh, Dagan has stressed that although he cannot predict how many casualties an attack on Iran would yield, he said, I have to assume that the level of destruction paralysis of everyday life and Israeli death toll would be high. Which reminds you a lot of Isaiah 17 when it says the glory of Jacob will fade and they will wax lean in Israel. See, my mind actually... People forget about that. I went to to Isaiah 19. That was the first thing. For some Mm -hmm. reason I heard Isaiah 19 and I thought about there will be an altar to God in the middle of of Egypt and then the Mm -hmm. border of Egypt. I was like, what does that have to do with what he's talking about? Um, 
It says, uh, he said that he has no interest in hiding his fervent opposition to an Israeli attack on Iran from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Ehud Barak. It's going to be very unpopular. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of people in Israel feel like him, I guess. Degan said he was worried about Barak's past comments on Iran, saying Barak believes Israel has less than a year to carry out a military strike. I'm very concerned, he said. My understanding of Barak's comments is that Israel must act within this time frame, but I don't believe this is accurate. Earlier Thursday, Barak responded to comments by U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Martin Dempsey, who said that he did not know whether Israel would alert the U.S. ahead of time if it decided to take military action against Iran. Barak said Israel isn't looking for war with Iran and said that he would be pleased if diplomatic moves and sanctions swayed Tehran away from its contentious nuclear program. Barak's comments came after Israeli intelligence sources told the Times of London on Wednesday that a recent explosion in the western Iranian city of Ishafan was not an accident, as Iranian officials had claimed, and that the local uranium conversion plant had been damaged in the blast. Mm -hmm. The intelligence officials told the Times that updated satellite images showed smoke billowing from the direction of the conversion plant. According to the Israeli sources, there was no doubt that the blast had damaged the nuclear facility and that the explosion was not an accident. This caused damage to the facilities in Ishafan, particularly to the elements we believed were involved in storage of raw materials, one source told the Times. So that's just another update from another direction. Mm -hmm. They're already doing co covert war. They're already doing... Covert war. Killing everybody in our side. Now, what happens when Iran sees this gets so bad they begin doing that against us? Interesting things. Interesting things. You know, with our water supply or things like that. Or, mm hmm. You know. Interesting things happen. Yeah. All well, right. Story? I do have a story. Uh,. Lined up in a gun rack beneath mounted deer heads is a Bushmaster Carbon 15, a matte black semi-automatic rifle that looks as if it belongs to uh, belongs to a SWAT team. Amen. On another rack rests a Teflon-coated Prairie what, Panther. What's this? What, what's the title of your store? How Freedom Group became the gun industry's giant. Okay. And it's just, it, it, you know, as you've mentioned in the past, a lot of times I'll pick. I'll pick a story that seems immediately sort of banal, but it has uh, interesting, far-reaching implications. Yeah, I just didn't know the topic. Didn't hear the topic. Okay. Uh, on another rack rests a Teflon-coated Prairie Panther from DPMS Firearms, a supplier to the United States Border Patrol and security agencies in Iraq. On a third is a Remington 750 Woodsmaster, a popular hunting rifle. I would love to have that firearm. Really? Yeah. To, like, minister to people with it? From a distance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a variety of rifles and shotguns on sale here at Cabela's, the national sporting goods chains, is a testament to America's enduring gun culture. In fact, they were the best-selling, it was the best-selling product on Black Friday was guns. Yeah. Yep, firearms. But to a surprising degree, it is also a testament to something else. Wall Street deal-making. In recent years, many top-selling brands, including the 195-year-old Remington Arms, as well as Bushmaster Firearms and DPMS, leading makers of military-style semi-automatics, have quietly passed into the hands of a single private company. It is called the Freedom Group, 
and it is the most powerful and mysterious force in the American commercial gun industry today. Hmm. Never heard of it? You're not Hmm. alone. No. Even within gun circles, the Freedom Group is something of an enigma. Its rise has been so swift that it has become the subject of wild speculation in grassy knoll-style conspiracy theories. In the realm of consumer rifles and shotguns, long guns in the trade, it is unrivaled in size and reach. By its own count, the Freedom Group sold 1.2 million long guns and 2.6 billion rounds of ammunition in the 12 months ending March 2010, the most recent year for which figures are publicly available. Behind this giant is Cerberus Capital Management, the private investment company that first be, that first came to widespread attention when it acquired Chrysler in 2007. Mm-hmm. Read Foundation X for all of you people that know anything about conspiracy stuff. Chrysler later had to be rescued by taxpayers, of course. Uh, with far less fanfare, Cerberus, uh, through the Freedom Group, has been buying big gun names, big names in guns and ammo. From its headquarters on Park Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, Cerberus has assembled a remarkable arsenal. It began with Bushmaster, a very big gun manufacturer, mm-hmm. which recent, until recently was based here in Maine. Unlike military counterparts like autom- automatic six, M16s, rifles like those from Bushmaster don't spray bullets with one trigger pull. But with gas-powered mechanisms, semi-automatics can fire rapid follow-up shots as fast as the trigger can be squeezed. They are often called black guns because of their color. The police tied a Bushmaster XM-15 rifle to Shootington, the Washington sniper case in 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little um, little commentary there by the author. Ooh, guns are bad. Oh, my gosh, run. Mm-hmm. Um, after Bushmaster, the Freedom Group moved in on Remington, which traces its history to the days of flintlocks and today is... Supplying M24 sniper rifles to the government in Afghanistan and making handguns for the first time in decades. Remington is a quality firearm. Yeah, I you make good it. razors, electric razors too. I, I, you know what? I have a Remington razor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The group has also acquired Marlin, also uh, make a very good firearm, which turned out a special model for Annie Oakley, as well as Dakota Firearms, are maker of high-end big-game rifles. It has brought bought. DPMS Firearms, another maker of semi-automatic military-style rifles, as well as manufacturers of ammunition and tactical clothing, we believe our scale and product breadth are unmatched within the industry, the Freedom Group said in a filing last year with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Here at Cabela's, Mark Eliasson, the Vice President for Sales and Marketing at Wyndham Weaponry, a new competitor of Bushmaster that was established by Bushmaster's founder, surveys the racks. He estimates that roughly 20% of the long guns for sale here are made by Freedom Group companies. In the aisles, he examines shelf upon shelf of ammunition. About a third of it comes from Freedom Group, he says. That's a very large present. Mm-hmm. presence. You ain't kidding. So large, in fact, that rumors about the Freedom Group, what it is and who is behind it, have been circulating in the blogosphere. Some gun enthusiasts have claimed the power behind the company is actually George Soros, hedge fund billionaire and liberal activist. Mr. Soros, these people have warned, is buying American gun companies so he can dismantle the industry. Second Amendment be damned. Um, The chatter grew so loud that the National Rifle Association issued a statement in October denying the rumors. 
NRA has, has had contact with officials from Cerberus and Freedom Group for some time. The NRA assured its members that owners and investors involved are strong supporters of the Second Amendment and are avid hunters and shooters. Mr. Soros isn't behind the Freedom Group, but ultimately another financer is Stephen Feinberg, the chief executive of Cerberus. Cerberus is one of the big is one of the signature Wall Street businesses of the fast decade decade mm-hmm. private equity. Buyout kings like Mr. Feinberg, 51, try to acquire undervalued companies, often with borrowed money, fix them up, and take them, and either take them public or sell at a profit to someone else. Before the financial crisis of 2008, scores of well-known American companies, from Chrysler down, passed into the hands of private equity firms. For the financiers, the rewards were often enormous, but some companies that they acquired later ran into trouble, in part because they were burdened with debt from takeovers. Mr. Feinberg, Feinberg, I'm sorry, a Princeton graduate who began his Wall Street career at Drexel Berman Lambert, might be Mm -hmm. worthy of a couple internet searches for those Mm -hmm. who are uh, conspiratorially inclined. Mm -hmm. The junk bond powerhouse of Michael R. Milliken fame got into private equity in 1992. That year, he and William Richter founded Cerberus, which takes its name from the three-headed dog in Greek mythology that guards the gates of Hades. Hmm. Pleasant association mm-hmm. there. Foundation X. Today, Mr. Fer- Feinberg presides over a private empire that rivals some of the mightiest public companies in the land. Cerberus manages more than $200 billion in capital. Together, the companies it owns generate annual revenue of about $40 billion, hmm. more than either Amazon or Coca-Cola. Wow. Wow. Why Cerberus went after gun companies isn't clear. Many private investment firms shy away from such industries to avoid scaring off big investors like pension funds. Yet in many ways, the move is classic Cerberus. Mr. Feinberg has a history of investing companies in companies that other people may not want, but that Cerberus believes it can turn around. When Cerberus embarked on its acquisition spree in guns, it essentially had the field to itself. There's much less buying for these companies, said Stephen N. Kaplan, a professor at University of Chicago Business yeah. School of Business. Can you say that name? It's it's C E R B R U S. C E R B E R U S. Yeah, Cerberus. Okay. I could yeah. have that wrong. Cerberus. I I don't know how they pronounce. Because um, I have seen the name of that company before, and I'm wondering, in fact, some of the stuff that I've been involved in, like armored vehicles and stuff like that, if they're involved in that as well too, mm-hmm. related yep. part of their business. Yep. Um. So to keep growing, anyway, true, the NRA estimates that about 70, uh, 70 million to 80 million Americans collectively own 300 million firearms. That's about one for every person, I guess. Yeah. A little bit more. Right. But how many of these people buy new guns regularly? For companies like the Freedom Group, the challenge is to expand the market. These days, more women are involved in target shooting, according to the participation reports from the National Sporting Goods Association. But, analysts say... Many young men who in the past might have taken up game hunting are now more interested in other other pursuits like online gaming. Mm-hmm. Right. So to keep growing, the Freedom Group has expanded its sales staff in the United States and is increasing its business internationally. It, man, here's where it gets interesting. It has sold weapons to the governments of Afghanistan, Thailand, Mexico, and Malaysia. Uh, there's quite a few others. I did a little Internet research. Mm-hmm. And obtained new business from the United States Army, including a contract worth up to $28.2 billion to upgrade the M24 sniper rifle system. If anybody mm-hmm. wants to, like, give me one of those, I'd accept it. Mm-hmm. Okay. They just have one sitting in the back of their house sort of collecting mm-hmm. dust mm-hmm. and just send it to my P.O. box. What were you planning to do with it? 
Well, you know, just sort of. Now Echelon is going to track this. What, they've been tracking us. Oh, come on. They've been tracking us for years. There's probably four snipers out there with an M24, like, trained on pyro. You think they've got, like, laser sights on us right now? Well, I don't know why that red dot is not. This it's, assumes that we have, like, any kind of rev- relevance or of any kind of impact to the world at large. They went That's after the big that, assumption. They went after that 20-year-old pot-smoking cousin of a... Uh, of a American-born Muslim cleric yeah. because they were investigating him and they put trackers on his car and then yeah. when he found one, they threatened to throw him in jail for a decade mm-hmm. for being a terrorist. That's because they needed a patsy. They needed somebody for the media mm-hmm. to show that's a danger. Mm-hmm. Anything else there on that story or what um, do you think the the summary? Well, the summary is, is here's a mysterious group doing mysterious stuff Yeah. and um, um, there's nothing that I can prove, but you know I've made yeah. I made some oblique references there yeah. in the article. That yeah, I've come across her name at various times. They're they're interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of companies mm-hmm. like that. Should look into the uh, ones that N- Nicholas Papa Nicolau together, the head of the uh, uh, Oak Initiative. Mm-hmm. There with Jerry Boykin. He has some interesting relationships mm-hmm. too. So uh, you want something a little something now completely different. And now for something completely different. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you're ready. Uh, this it. is on Fox News. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, recent charges of sexual abuse of children in Hollywood, just tip of the iceberg, experts say. If a spate of uh, recent allegations proves true, Hollywood may have a hideous epidemic on its hands. In the past two weeks, they've brought three separate reports of alleged child sexual abuse in the entertainment industry. Now, you know, we've just been through this with Penn State, now Syracuse, and now we're, uh, this is coming up. Yeah, well, even Herman Cain had some peripheral connection to the her Franklin case. Well, we don't know, but curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity. Curiosity killed these cats. Yeah. Uh, Martin Weiss, a 47-year-old Hollywood manager who represented child actors, was charged in Los Angeles on December 1st with sexually abusing a f- former client. His accuser, who was under 12 years old during the time of the alleged abuse, reported to authorities that Weiss told him that what they were doing was common practice in the entertainment industry. Weiss pleaded not guilty. On November 21st, Fernando Rivas, 59 years old, an award-winning composer for Sesame Street, was arraigned on charges of coercing a child to engage in sexually explicit conduct in South Carolina. The Juilliard-trained composer was also charged with production and distribution of child pornography. From you know, Chesimus I Street. had a discussion with somebody one time. He was a um, he was a member of a major police department's, uh, yeah. like you know, L.A.-sized yeah. police department. Uh, they had their own own sort of private group that investigated like child pornography and stuff inside mm-hmm. the, the county. Yeah, and I I asked him. I only had one conversation mm-hmm. with him. I asked him, I said, what percentage of of people involved in child pornography are involved in Satanism? He said, I've never come across a case that hasn't involved it. Yeah. Never. Yeah. It's it's always there. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Very I'm interesting. sorry. That's all right. Um, registered sex offender Jason James Murphy, 35, worked as a casting agent in Hollywood for years before his past kidnapping and sexual abuse of a boy was revealed by the L.A. Times on November 17th. Murphy's credits, including placing young actors in kid-friendly fare like the Bad News Bears, the School of Rock, Cheaper by the Dozen Two, and the forthcoming Three Stooges. Revelations of this sort come as no surprise to former child star Corey Feldman. 
Feldman. Yeah, he, he was a guy who kind of shattered that. Yeah, yeah, right. Feldman, 40, himself a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, unflinchingly warned the world of pedophile of the world of pedophiles who were drawn to the entertainment industry last August. I can tell you that the number one problem in Hollywood was and is and always will be pedophilia, Feldman told ABC's Nightline. That's the biggest problem for children in this industry. It's the big secret. Another child star from an earlier era agrees that Hollywood has long had a problem with pedophilia. Uh, she says, when I watched that interview, a whole series of names and faces from my history went zooming through my head. Hmm. Or a nut guy here. Paul Peterson, 66, star of the Donna Reed Show, a popular sitcom in the 50s and 60s, and president of a minor consideration, tells FoxNews.com, some of these people, who I know very well, are still in the game. Okay, this has been going on for a very long time, concurs former Little House on the Prairie star Allison Arngrim. It was the gossip back in the 80s. People said, oh yeah, the Corys, everyone's had them. Talking about these boys. Mm -hmm. And then passed around. People talked about it like it was not a big deal. Arngrim, 49, was referring to Feldman and his co-stars in The Lost Boys, Corey Haim, who died in March 2010 after years of drug abuse. He says, I literally heard that they were passed around, Arngrim said. Yeah. The word was that they were given drugs and being used for sex. Exactly the same stuff that the people who went through the Franklin case alleged. Yeah, that's right. It was awful. These were kids. They weren't 18 yet. There were all sorts of stories about everyone uh, from their, quote, set guardians on down uh, that these two had been sexually abused and were totally being corrupted in every way possible. In fact, it's the very nature of a TV or movie set that invites predators, experts tell Fox News. Mm-hmm. A set in Hollywood with children can become a place that attracts pedophiles because the children there may be vulnerable and less tended to, explains Beverly Hills psychotherapist uh, Dr. Jen Berman. One thing we know about actors, psychologically speaking, is that they're people who like a lot of attention. Kids naturally like a lot of attention, and when you put a kid on the set who is unsupervised and getting attention from someone who is powerful, it treats a vulnerability uh, for a dangerous situation. Feldman, who claims that he was surrounded by pedophiles when he was 14, says the sexual abuse by an unnamed Hollywood mogul led to the death of his friend Haim at the age of 38. That person needs to be exposed, but unfortunately I can't be the one to do it. Feldman told Nightline. There's more than one person to blame, said Arngrim. I'm sure that it was not just one person who was sexually who sexually abused Corey Haim, and I'm sure it wasn't only him and Corey Feldman who knew about it. I'm sure that dozens of people were aware of the situation and chose not to report it. Arngrim, a board member of the National Spokesperson for Protect.org, an organization that works to protect children from physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, says greed in Hollywood allows sexual pro predators to flourish. Let's catch this. Nobody wants to stop the gravy train, says Ardram. If a child actor is being sexually abused by someone on the show, is the family, agents or managers, the people who are getting money out of this, going to say, okay, let's press charges? No, because it's going to bring the whole show to grinding halt and stop all the checks. So the pressure is there not to say anything. It's almost a willing sacrifice that many parents are oblivious to. What kind of environment do they think that they're pushing their kid into, said Peterson. The casting couch is the real thing. 
And sometimes just getting an appointment makes people do desperate things. Arngrim, who revealed her own sexual abuse in her 2010 autobiography, Confessions of a Prairie, B-I-T-C-H, explains, I've heard from victims from all over the country. Everyone tells the same kind of story. Everyone is told to keep it secret. Everyone is threatened with something. Corey Feldman may have opened a can of worms by speaking out, but yes, this does go on. And even though Feldman spoke candidly about the abuse, he hasn't named the predator. People don't want to talk about this because they're afraid of their career, says Peterson. I wonder if they're afraid of even their lives. Um, I would. You took the words out of my uh, mouth there, brother. From my perspective, what Corey did was pretty brave. It would be really wonderful if his allegations reached through all of the protective layers and identified the real people who are part of a worldwide child pornography ring because it's huge and it respects no borders, just as it does not respect the age of the children involved. So these are just more veils being unopened of the satanic world that just mm-hmm. lives just under the veneer of where most of us live that surrounds us. You know? It's it's sort of coming apart at the seams. And, and Franklin like, had connections to to the White House, right? Uh, a lot of them, yeah. supposedly. It, yeah. That's one of those things I really, really get, have a hard time being sort of even a little bit cool about. Mm-hmm. We've got about 12 minutes. you got something else to... I got, I got one more story, as luck would have it. Okay. Um, this is from a, uh, a website that I, I check out every once in a blue moon. It's called market-ticker.org. It's mm-hmm. the site of yeah. uh, Carl Denninger. You know, right. prob- a lot of people probably know him in our audience. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting. I, I don't always agree with what he says, but I appreciate his viewpoint. Yeah. Um, uh, here's an interesting one. It's it's an article called "Let's Make the Clawback Risk Real." One of the forum members pointed out something that was obvious to me when I wrote this morning's ticker, but might have gone over your head. I want to make absolutely sure, and he, and he bolds and underlines it, it doesn't go over your head, because if you're wrong about this, you could lose everything in your bank and investment accounts every single dime. FDIC, SIPC insured or not. And this is a some... Some stuff mm-hmm. on clawback, you know. I'd like to think of myself as re- relatively well informed, and yeah. I hadn't really considered this, yeah. especially this this 2005 law. Recently, Bank of America transferred a bunch of derivatives into their banking arm. A bunch means somewhere around 800 trillion worth. That's pretty good, son. Yeah, that's not like that's like our kind of account for yep. the show. Now pay very careful attention because part of the bankruptcy quote-unquote reform law in 2005 placed derivative claims in front of depositors in a business failure, including a bank failure. What if J.P. Morgan... Explain what that means. um, When there is a failure, if a company fails, there is, you know, everybody gets in line to get paid. Right. Right. And there is a rank ordering bondholders uh-huh. and different yeah, people. Yeah, the special Lanes. specials bef- go before common stock, and mm-hmm. or it's bondholders and the special bond, and then bond, and then common yeah. special, guess and then creditors common. probably come first, don't they? Yeah, it depends the on liens and stuff. It it gets kooky. Yeah, I yeah, know. It, it gets kooky. I don't even know how that was all decided by yeah. law, but it's a it, it ends up a lot of times in experience. It ends up being like a like a sort of a. Everybody runs to the exit to see who can grab it first. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. those things you see at Walmart, everybody sort of runs to the Well, we've been going through this. Rack. Mrs. Future and I made an investment in something mm-hmm. that somebody ended up doing something fraudulent down the line, not the mm-hmm. people we dealt with, but somebody they dealt with. 
that ran off with some money, and so they've been settling their estate. And everybody goes to court representing all their interests, and then the judge has to sort out what are the remaining assets and the you know rank mm-hmm. ordering. And sometimes a lot of them aren't liquid assets, so it takes a long time to divest of them. So it is a mm-hmm. mess, like you say. It takes many, many years to settle. Yep. Oh, shoot. There we go. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the thing. What J.P. Morgan is claiming in the MF Global case is that the derivative trade, which is exactly what a repo to maturity trade is, it's a derivative, is entitled to preference in the case of MF Global over those who had cash there for safekeeping, either as a margin deposit or just as free cash as you would hold like in a bank. If a major bank blows up, this very same claim supported an existing bankruptcy law with the changes signed by George Bush in 2005 will be used to steal the entirety of your bank account. And if you detect the impending blow up shortly before it happens, say 90 days before, you're still still exposed to the risk through clawback. I have often referenced how that the quote. Does this mean like if you get your money out ahead of time thinking something bad is going to happen? They can take it back. That's exactly what it means. Yeah. 90 days. If you think that a bank is going to blow up 90 days beforehand, you're smart. You liquidate your account. They can come back and ask you for that money back. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I've often referenced how that reform law in 2005 was used to – you know, to steal from you uh, blind as a consumer, all under the name of the ownership society and responsibility. The truth is that this reform law was a raw example of financial malfeasance that was intended to and did assault you, the common consumer in America, for the explicit purpose of benefiting large financial institutions. Don't run any anything about FDIC insurance in, in this sort of event either. In the singular case of Bank of America, we're talking about $77 billion in face value of derivatives. While notional values are wildly beyond what, what anyone would have to pay, as that figure assumes the reference all goes to a literal value of zero, the fact remains that even 5% loss of the amount of money required would be roughly equal to the entire U.S. federal budget. <laughs> which the FDIC obviously does not have. They'd probably come to get all that from my bank account. Yep. Pyro. Yeah. No more no more no more Let's put him to work. Yep. No more no more nights out on the town, buddy. Mm-hmm. They stole from you. A cascade failure of several large banks could easily result in loss claims that would exceed the entire US GDP. For obvious reasons, virtually none of that would actually be paid or recovered in and in, in the case of you, the average person, your reasonable expectation of recovery in such an event is zero. There is a fairly cogent argument to be made that B of A did, a tan- did as tantamount to intentionally placing an armed financial nuclear device in the center of the boardroom table and then daring anyone, including the government, to come tamper with it and risk setting it off, knowing full well that if it explodes, it is utterly impossible to contain damage to our economy or fi- financial system. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just in case you missed it, this risk is not limited to Bank of America. Go look at any of the large banks and their derivative book of business notional value and then tell me what it makes that it that it makes a bit of a difference which institution we're talking about at any instant in time. If mm. this risk is not sunk into your brain by now, despite my insistent table pounding, and he does about once mm-hmm. a day, uh, you need to go <laughs> for a psychiatric examination. 
This is not to or say... take some lithium in your water. Yep. Well, that may happen, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if my Berkey takes lithium out. I don't know. Interesting question. This is not to say that you're about to have the entirety of your savings account, CDs, and similar disappear because nobody knows exactly how much risk lies where with what in the U.S. banking system. But as we have seen in 2007, executives will lie with impunity about their exposure and level of risk in this regard. And despite uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, which he shortens Mm -hmm. to Sarbox, sounds like a Mm -hmm. bad guy in a movie, which allegedly makes such lies. I think it's those cookies that look like uh, Mm -hmm. Oreos, but they're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sarbox. Yeah. At any rate, I'll, I'll get to the point. The bottom line is this. The risk is very real, as customers of MF Global have now discovered the hard way, and if you're sticking your head in the sand, at this point, you have no right to complain when and if it happens to you. Hmm. So there you have it. Well, that makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I think you've gone through, I think, six stories. And I'm going to do an abbreviated one of these and close with our mail, if that's okay. Um mm-hmm. I won't go through all this, but this is from the Moscow News, which, you know, another one I like to read. When sterilization becomes genocide. Okay. Um, Here's a quote at the beginning. It says, it looks like the dignity of human life has never been amongst the globalization mastermind's concerns. That was from the Argentine writer Ernesto Sabato. Maria Mastanza, a peasant in Peru's Cajamarca region, was told that she would be jailed if she refused to undergo a birth control operation. When she arrived at the local medical center, she did not realize that she was just one of many victims of President Alberto Fujimori's sterilization genocide against the country's indigenous uh, Quechia population. Fujimori, an authoritarian leader who ran Peru with an iron fist in 2000, is currently in prison for 25 years on corruption charges. Back in the 1990s, Fujimori's population control program, I don't know if you're familiar with this, was co-financed by the United States Agency for International Development, uh, the USAID, uh, which contributed $36 million okay, to genocide people, and the United Nations Population Fund, which gave $10 million. On taking office in 90, 1990, Fujimori declared that Peru's women must be in charge of their own destiny and promised that family planning would be available to all women regardless of income. In reality, the program amounted to genocide. For over a century, governments around the world have been trying to apply the Malthusian theory of population control. English political economist and demographer Thomas Malthus argued that overpopulation brings hunger, poverty, environmental destruction, disease, and social unrest. Today, Malthusian theory has been taken up enthusiastically by such figures as Jeffrey Sachs, the U.S. economist who applied shock therapy to uh, Russia and Latin America alike in the 90s. Uh, Sachs, who now heads the Earth Institute, promotes the idea of population control for sustainability's sake. The U.S. was the first country to introduce eugenic sterilization and the preventing individuals to believe to be carriers of genetic defects from reproducing. Aren't you make you proud to be American? So it makes this exceptional. Um, Indiana enacted a eugenic sterilization law in 1907 with California and Washington following suit two years later. You know, Indiana doesn't have that on their plates, you know, first in eugenics. They should put that on the license. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> these practices later turned into genocide in Hitler's Germany. Later, mm-hmm. after us, where doctors were obliged to report mental patients, alcoholics, epileptics, and deaf, blind, and other physically mm-hmm. disabled people so that they could be sterilized. A total of 400,000 people were coerced into sterilization and another 70,000 killed. The Japanese followed suit, also adopting a eugenic protection law. After World War II... A eugenic protection law. Yeah. Protect society from individuals. After World War II, as many naively hoped the age of barbarism had ended, the U.S. launched, this is in the modern era, a trial eugenics program in Puerto Rico, where women were employed in U.S.-owned factories for low wages. One in three female workers were forcibly sterilized. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Americans, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's Puerto Rico. The yeah. Americans contemplated taking similar action in Cuba, but their plans were thwarted by Fidel Castro's revolution in 1959. Mm-hmm. So we we couldn't provide our loving hand to them because of Castro. At that time, the U.S. was funding a global sterilization program known as the acronym PIEGO, funded by or guided by Dr. Ravenholt of the Johns Hopkins University. The program aimed to protect U.S. economic interest. That's always the economic thing. Mm-hmm. And to prevent an overseas population explosion, which could potentially undermine U.S. domination of global markets. The target was to sterilize 70 million women of childbearing age, or one quarter of the world's female population. That was their goal. Yeah. To oh, sterilize yeah. one quarter of the female women. It is women. beyond horrible. This, I've read this, some of this stuff. This and is it's like deepest part of hell. Yeah. Uh, category. Apparently inspired by Piego, Fujimori introduced forced sterilization to Latin America in 95, mm-hmm. trying to demonstrate his loyalty to Washington. He launched a campaign for the compulsory sterilization of the country's indigenous women, mostly from the Quechia tribe. Over the next five years, about half the Quechia women of reproductive age, some 331,600, were sterilized and some 30,000 men were forced to have vasectomies. Out of the estimated 6 million Peruvian women of reproductive age, about 5% were forcibly sterilized, and over 95% of them were Cuchilla Indians. Rural doctors were given a quota of nine sterilizations per month, and those who failed to meet targets were fired or punished in other ways. Tactics included deceit, intimidation, and the threat of reduced rations. Women were threatened with imprisonment and denial of access to public services, including medical care and education for their children. Women were cynically tricked into agreeing to tubal ligation procedures. They were told it was the most effective temporary contraception method and that they would be able to bear children again after a while. Sterilizations were also performed in poor hygienic conditions without preliminary tests or even a medical history being taken. Today, Peru's government is considering putting Fujimori on trial again, this time for his forced sterilization of Quechia women. And globalization masterminds pretend they are working to ensure sustainable development, a task that they argue requires the deindustrialization of what was once known as the third world. I went through that quickly, but that's pretty heavy I mean, duty. That's, yeah. that's, that's in-game stuff there. Mm-hmm. You ready to go into some email? Yeah, please. Close, Let's close do, do an email last here. a little bit here. Roll. Okay, this is Roll from Brother Carl. In my email, yo. It's Brother, Brother Carl. He's, uh, he says, uh, here it is, just past 2 a.m., and I've just heard the concluding 10 minutes of Future Quake 281. Sweet. Well, i got to tell you, Doc, that was a heck of a shot of great radio to a weary heart over here in creative no-man's land. 
Thanks for sharing Tim Mormon with us. What a cool guy. A great show and greatly inspiring to the crush artist and all of us. I really love that show. I think it was obvious to everybody. Being surrounded by all this dust and rubble around here, I actually began to remember what the heck I had forgotten about. A great breath of fresh air and sorely needed. Thanks again, Doc. It was a major solid for use truly. And greetings to Bionicus and a hearty pat for Pyro. Pax Futuria. Okay. You got your little pat in there, buddy. And he, he says further after I responded to him, he says, uh, he says, uh, Doc, there's a pastor I used to listen to who would often say the majority is, is always wrong all of the time. So mm-hmm. with that, I figure I must be doing something right over here. I do hereby, um, he says, it says, for all the sleeping artistic geniuses out there in Future Quake Radio Land, well, as the old coot bellowed out from his porch of Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life, all oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. I thought Tim Orman was a wonderful storyteller and refreshingly self-effacing. It was also pretty cool hearing how delighted you were interviewing an old favorite of yours. And like I said, the last ten minutes or so of the show was just quiet fire blazing. It should be required listening for every person who never picked up that paintbrush when they've been thinking about it all those years ago or had been told it wouldn't work or been kicked around so much that they began to believe that they just couldn't do it like everybody's been saying all along. So what's the matter with everybody out there? Didn't anybody hear the last 10 minutes of Future Quake 281? What is up with you people anyway? <laughs> nice. uh, uh, he says, uh, I hope you spend the extended weekend doing just nothing for a change. And looking forward to gleaning more apparently hidden messages in the distant corners of Futuria. Brother Carl got it, got what it was all about. That, mm-hmm. the, the, these shows like that are int- intended to inspire people, to inspire people, to encourage them to try things in their own life, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what Brother Carl was getting at, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And here's one, it's a little, little lengthy, but it's from Brother Clay in Alabama. Okay, this is Dr. Future and Tom Bionic. My wife and I have been following Future Quake for about a year, and I must tell you that Jesus Christ ministered to us through you in a marvelous way, that, that only someone of his impeccable character and exceptional qualifications can. Blessings to you for your willingness to serve him. Lee, my wife, and I both grew up as willful children in politically conservative households. Romantic, highly creative, and rebellious, we both fell in love with history, animals, music, literature, and the outdoors at a young age. Truthfully, our natural curiosity and wanderlust, coupled with an almost insatiable appetite for old things like banjos, Indians, horses, and Shakespeare. I like this dude. <laughs> he's an interesting read. Yeah. Made us stand out from our family who seemed interested in maintaining the Reagan-era status quo and our friends who diligently studied MTV and hanging out at the local mall. We were keenly aware of our otherness during the formidable years of adolescence, and so was Satan. Lee and I... Both cannot remember when our lives were not punctuated with random events of a supernatural character. Sadly, we threw caution to the wind and explored the great uh, swath of tantalizing deceptions that the lie offered. Mm-hmm. The New Age, drugs, magic, music, and Mars all took their toll. Furthermore, we have dealt with the depressing effects of having our stories and opinions dismissed by people we love and respect as if they were little more than the products of imagined fantasy. Not that we can't relate to that. To make this story short and sweet, Jesus Christ changed all this for us. In the middle of writing my master's thesis, which is concerned with bluegrass festivals and the invention of tradition in 20th century America, 
Mm-hmm. He says, Tom, I'm, I think we might have some interesting things to talk about music. I'll bet. He says, I had a nervous breakdown. The after effects of the calamity challenged our worldviews to the point where we were utterly helpless. In this pit, we cried out to Christ, and he answered. Soon after, he led me to Chuck Missler. Lee and I started studying the Bible all the time. Man, well, you can fill in the rest. Mm-hmm. Here we are a few years later, Futurians to the core. One of the great things about Jesus is that he is truth and his presence in our lives naturally fleshes out the darkness of the lie that our carnality loves. When you have had strange encounters with things not easily explained, the sanctifying process that comes from relationship with Jesus Christ is the truest expression of liberation that exists in the universe. I think every person has had such strange encounters. Some witness satanic handiwork through media coverage of false flag terrorism. Some see demons, some have seen both. The reason Future Quake is so important to us is because we can listen to you and know that you would not immediately dismiss us. We bring up topics about the supernatural in any any way other than what you would expect to hear from a mainline denominational church. Most all our friends and family promptly dismiss our conversation as novelty. Do not misunderstand me. We love these people dearly and pray for them and give thanks for them because they love us and many of them love Christ. However, the body of the Lord is not limited by the manipulable barriers that the baby Burma status quo implemented to shield itself from discomfort. Mm-hmm. Make no mistake, I am no radical and I tread upon the beliefs and traditions of my progenitors with great care and respect. Though they often follow hollow and vain philosophies, they are God's creation and my heart wants to see their eyes open especially those who are in my own flesh and blood. However, I do understand that the way, the truth, and the life, that is Jesus Christ, trumps all affections. Brothers, Lee and I consider you our family, and we pray for you in the work you do. God bless you. Wow. I just wish he was able to put his words together and articulate his music. Yeah, it's not really, you know. I'm not feeling it. You know. (laughs) It was beautiful, Thank you, Brother Clay and Lee, both of you, Futurians. You, you you just embodied basically in that discussion, sort of the mindset of what Future Quake's all about. We you know we all are individually wherever we are, Timbuktu spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. We all feel isolated and everybody thinks we're crazy, but we do have a family here that we all get each other. Mm-hmm. And we get we have some little minor differences, but we we all are isolated from our peers, and that's what brings us in common. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thank the Lord for us. Uh, you got time for one more, you think? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, let me just throw one more on you. Okay. This is about the David Lowe Show. Um, let's see here. It says, uh, guys, thank you for your presentation with David Lowe on the nature of the enemy. The issue of whether God made Satan evil from the beginning is really the classic problem for Christian logic. When we try to speak on this issue, there's always a tendency to be responding to a logical problem. You may address the problem, but still fail to create a doctrine that stands well on its own, which is why most of us just prefer the word to any other source, although we do profit from other sources. Lowe responds well to the idea of the evolution of the devil, so to speak, based on spotty translations. However, in doing so, he leaves us with the notion that God prefers that there be a devil as opposed to no devil at all. This seems to be implied in the notion that the devil was created to be a murderer, etc., in dealing with an entity that stands outside of time, our loving Father, I find I just find we, we get more murky, not less here. These free will problems, from a human perspective, always emphasize that, quote, sovereign God made, fill in the blank, to be, fill in the blank. 
though the God of the Bible owns evil to some extent, is this sovereignty line of reasoning really satisfying at all, logically or spiritually? If one reads the end of the book and somehow concludes that God sovereignly manifested his presence for a devil from the beginning, it's just really too awkward. The, um, you know. I, I actually, well, it, it would take me years to, to really flesh it out and make a robust thing about yeah. it. But I, I think I have an answer to that, uh, you know, the, the devil and whether or not he was created and yeah. all this stuff. And it is wrapped up. Uh, I'll give people some clues to my thinking. Okay. It's wrapped up in passages about heaven, yeah. and it is wrapped up in the in in the perceived change uh, between the Old Testament Hasatan and Diablos and the Septuagint and its intertestamental change and its mm-hmm. view in the New Testament. There's a specific reason why it changed. And this goes back to what happened in prehistory. Well, I mean, not so much prehistory, but as recorded in the Bible, okay. uh, you see in the Old Testament that that Satan isn't—he's he's, there's never never given a proper name that I can see, yeah. and he always is shown sort of as like the accuser, yeah. sort of solely under control, doing God's bidding in some yeah. sense. Yeah. In the intertestamental period, he changed as to be seen more slightly as an exclusive, you know, more of a personal mm-hmm. enemy, to where at the by the after, you know. After Jesus' ministry, yeah. it was like he's our primary thing that we fight now. So what do we interpret from that? Is that a progressive revelation where the last revelation is the most accurate one? Um, or did he change? Uh, our position changed. So having said that, I presume that the latter one would be the most accurate one. Not that either of them are inaccurate. It's it's sort of like, is the is the squirrel moving around the tree or is the tree moving around the squirrel? It all depends on your... Perception. Well, that makes it clear. I've really, I really yeah. fleshed that one out for people. Yeah, he continues the whole Sorry. Potter I analogy. Just been silent. No, that's okay. You just got something worth to think about. The whole Potter analogy is a useful response to people, but hard of the whole picture. Jesus chose Judas, who chose to fall. Jesus saw something in him. Why did he still choose him? Maybe he chose Judas because his love for what was in that man before betrayal was more important than the end of the story. Maybe there was something about free will. That is so intensely beautiful that a bad ending or interlude is somehow beside the point. If you believe, like me, that Jesus had victory over illness in Isaiah 53, the bending of your mind is uncomfortable yet hard to avoid. This works the time problem in the other direction. And yet, the issue is the same. God gives gifts which are so overpoweringly brilliant, beautiful, and immediate. that uh, He put that on the enemy, I would guess. And maybe an ability to repent as well. More importantly, despite the incredible evil tendencies that exist, we have the power to choose to be like God, restored in his image by his blood, being of one flesh and as a bride of Christ. Blessings, David. And uh, I told him thanks for his comments. And then he said a little bit more. He says, uh, he says, I love the program and I learned a lot from Mr. Lowe. I'm not sure that that was clear. I will be a lot more careful with Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Tom Bionic, I think, is right to approach it from different, several different levels, which I think brings you back close to the consensus, but with some cautionary flags. I twisted the man's words a bit by going from what God wills to what he prefers, because I think the latter is implicit in what the evangelicals usually say about sovereignty. People say that God wills the disease you are suffering as if he prefers it. 
Certainly God made a world with the laws that lead to such diseases, and so he willed it. I am with the evangelicals on that. But he also made a way of escape, and I dare say he prefers that we use it, or him. Maybe Satan even had a way of escape by repentance. Who knows? With that question, what does being a murderer from the beginning mean? There are a bunch of asterisks and exceptions that apply, possibly sort of like the admitted exceptions to the five points of Calvinism, which can sound very Arminian. While God can see the end from the beginning, free will is still free will. The Potter acknowledges solves some issues, but not all of them. Humans don't have the equipment to really speak well about what God does outside of time and what people have the right to change out of free will. At Cana, Mary said to make us some wine. Jesus said it was not for, for wine. The plan was not for wine. Mary said to just submit to whatever Jesus wanted. It just happened to turn out that the plan was that he wanted was to really make his mother happy. So much for a classical understanding of sovereignty. There is no way to understand this passage unless you're in love. Isaiah 53 is about love. It bends the rules as we know them. It even bends an understanding of time. When God made Satan, could he have made him without love? You know, that's that kind of heavy-duty stuff like having talked to Robert Hyde in the car for a couple hours, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't have the intellectual capacity to fully wrap my arms around that. But, Brother Dave, you're doing the kind of thinking that we as Christians need to do rather than having somebody preach you or stuff and preach like you, you hear on TV most of the time. But you know somebody else that can preach you a message for our listeners is mm. Merv, who can tell all of you how to contact us at Future Quick. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. We're running late, bro. Any last words for our listeners? Love is the law, buddy. Now you sound like Aleister Crowley. No, he did not say that. Didn't he say it? Love above all the law? No. I said the law, well, okay, love should rule. How about that? All right. Let the love of Christ rule you in mean. your heart. Hey, there you go. I know what you mean. I'm just giving you a hard time. I know. Um, I agree with you. And I love you, brother. I and I love you. all our future years. Well, thanks. <laughs> There's no more love. <laughs> the love tank's empty now. No, no. no I know you loved and future you hated, sort of like in Romans, I guess. Uh-huh. Well, regardless of what you think of me, I love all you future years out there. I thank you so much for you. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Keep your eye in the news, but more importantly, keep your nose in the Bible and keep your heart toward heaven. Mm-hmm. And until we talk to you next week, may your future be always bright. Have a good day.
la 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 la